We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here, although he is a fan of the thing that we are going to be doing here. Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we have these special bonus episodes, whether it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something completely different. And this is one of our fun commentary tracks. It's the first commentary track of 2021. And um, this is uh, the kickoff of what's going to be a, a several month long plan for commentaries. We're going to be talking about all of the Hannibal Lecter films, uh, some of them based off of Thomas Harris novels. Um, and that, that is what we're going to be doing here. We're going to go over all five of them. So from now until May, you're going to be hearing a lot about Hannibal Lecter, along with the various characters he's associated with. Um, and for this first first commentary track to start that off, we are talking Michael Mann's Manhunter adapted from the novel Red Dragon by, of course, Thomas Harris. And uh, joining me to discuss Manhunter, we have host of the Brandon Peters Show. Don't call him the Tooth Fairy. It's Brandon Peters. Aaron Neuwirth. Other people are here. Do you see? (laughs) I see. There is someone behind you. Do you see? (laughs) I see. Someone laughed. Did you hear? I see. Also joining us from Wise Blue and Flicks for fans, he's Team Will all the way. It's Jason Coleman. You owe me all. Oh, so happy to be here. So happy to be here. Also joining us from Nothing's On, the Nothing's On podcast and the HHWLED podcast network, straight from Degada Davida, it's Jim Dietz. I'm sorry. Could you help me with this podcast? I don't have the use of my arms or legs. <laughs> And lastly, joining us from Forbes, he's almost as strong as I am. It's Scott Mendelson. <laughs> this is my design. <laughs> How are all of you doing this evening? Oh, awesome. I'm doing this well. Pump for this one. Yeah. Excited. <laughs> Great movie. Personal investment in this one. <laughs> I, I, I'm very aware that you guys are big fans of this movie. There are a lot of fans of this movie. Some are very sad that they couldn't talk about this movie, but this is going to be fun. Um, and fret not, because there's going to be plenty of things to talk about for the next several months involving many of the same characters. But uh, that's... But this is the best run-through of this story. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the movie Manhunter. The five of us all have the film currently paused during the D. De Laurentiis... <laughs> The Dino De Laurentiis logo um, on our screens. We have the, there's like a lion in that logo. We have that kind of paused on our screen right now. So, with, with that in mind, when, when I count down to from three, two, one to sound of go, we're going to press play and just start talking about the movie. So, if you plan to watch Manhunter and listen to us talk, just pause around the Dino De Laurentiis logo and uh, just you know press play when we say play. For everybody else, uh, you're good. Just enjoy what we have to say about. Uh, this very family-friendly serial killer movie. By the way, by the way, I just have to I have to preface it by saying, of course, I'm such a huge fan that my firstborn is named Will Graham Coleman. So I I I am coming from this from a very personal point of view. So, <laughs> and he's not he's not named after the Hugh Dancy or the Edward Norton character. This he was born in in uh, the year 2000, so he was <laughs> named after William Peterson's Will Graham Coleman. Got it. Thank you. Any other child name declarations we need to make before we get this podcast started? (laughs) I named my first son Hannibal the Cannibal Mendelssohn. I was going to name mine Brian Cox Peters, but I don't think Cox (laughs) Peters is going to go over too well with people. That's that's, that's too much. Yeah, you're right. Maybe Gum Mendelssohn has a certain ring to it. Yeah. Okay. So with that out of the way, let's do this thing. Three. Everybody ready? Three, two, 
one, go. Axel Braun was like, I don't even name characters that, man. <laughs> All right. Um, this film is going to show my age because I was born um, the same year that it came out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 that said, it's not like some of you might I'm pointing mainly at one or two um but not all of us were like of an age where like we can see this movie in theaters be like yeah that's amazing but i i want to start with jim because i know you're a huge fan uh obviously we're all fans but i know you're a huge you're a huge fan of like going back to like michael mann's thief you always talk about thief a lot but so watching one of my favorite movies of all time absolutely and the keep too the movie made right before this i'm a huge michael mann fan in this period and i saw this movie in the theater actually because uh, I had seen To Live and Die in L.A. just like, I don't know, six months or nine months previous to this. Mm-hmm. And I thought William Peterson was so awesome in that that uh, I, I wanted to see him in something else. And I saw this and it was Michael Mann. So it was, uh, you know, it's obviously a must-see for me, even as a teenager. So This is like a Sega CD game, by the way. Yeah, the <laughs> opening of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. Dark, uh, it's dark, creepy. but good. It's oh, creepy. so dark, but good. So what good. a great way to start off a movie. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about the style and Tom Noonan, of course, but mm-hmm. I want to get these origin stories for our viewings out of the way here. Jason, when did you first see uh, Manhunter? I mean, I, the, I think in order to pay homage to this movie, you really have to look at the times between 84 and 86, because it was all about Miami Vice. The three things that, that will be co- constantly get referenced, which is Miami Vice, Band of the Hand, and Manhunter. I mean, they all kind of existed within this 84 to 86 reality. So it's... I would agree it, with two thirds of that. I don't know about Band of the Hand. I love Band but, of the Hand. It's I know it's I know it's it's one of those yeah, I'm just pleasures. saying as far as it being popular, but like Miami <laughs> right. Vice, no, 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 I don't right. agree with you. Miami Vice was everywhere at that point. Yeah. But the style, I mean the style and the and the, and the way it was steeped and just just the the music influences, the casting, a lot of people got went back to not only Miami Vice but also Band of the Hand. So like there's a lot of connection between those three projects. But I, all three of those, I was obsessed with Miami Vice. In grade grade seven, I went to school with a full Don Johnson white outfit. Are with there the, pictures with, with, with the loafer? Absolutely not. That's, with, that's with, why he's wearing it. He's wearing it now. <laughs> no loafers, no socks. Huge fan. So anything that had a t- that was attached to Michael Mann, I was just obsessed with. So Band of the Hand, and then of course Manhunter. All right. Well, Scott, how about you? When did you first see Manhunter? I saw this on network television because I believe NBC aired it relatively soon after Sansa Lambs opened in theaters to great acclaim and success. And it was sort of advertised as, you know, before Sansa Lambs, the one that started it all. And, you know, I was 11 at the, 10 at the time. So wait, yeah. Um, so yeah, I fell for it. So of course I'm watching this movie and, you know, it took me another viewing or two when I was a little bit older to sort of get into its rhythms, but it certainly wasn't what I was expecting from a movie that, frankly, I had never heard of up till then that was being advertised as being similar to the, you know, the 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 much more popular and arguably more mainstream serial killer thriller. Um, even so, I mean, you know, it, it it was I enjoyed it. I I. You know, ironically, I figured the reason it wasn't particularly gory or violent is because it was, you know, edited for television. It wasn't until I saw it on VHS uncut several years later that I was, oh, this is a pretty, you know, uh, low-key, not particularly grotesque picture. Um, so, yeah, that's I first saw this as a youngster on a Sunday NBC Sunday night movie. Before we keep going, I just want to note how the film 
you know, we we always had that cold open um, that gives you the point of view of of Dollarhide. Uh, mm-hmm. But the I, I like how the film just kind of throws you right into it. Like you you you, you don't mm-hmm. need a kind of a origin sequence. Of, I mean, we'll talk about Red Dragon when we get to it. But you don't need like an origin <laughs> sequence of Will Graham, where you don't need like. You know, so this is where the book starts. The book starts right here with these yeah, two. Yeah, well, I know, but I, I do like how the film, you know, it rep, it replicates the book as far and in terms of like storytelling. It's not about like setting up this guy and what he is in a you know a more traditional route as far as we go. It's more like yeah, no, we're just here. We're at this place mm-hmm. where this guy's already damaged. Uh, he already has this kind of point of view on things. We don't. We don't need to like call in Dennis Farina to be like, I gotta go get Will Grant. He's just there already. <laughs> He's just doing this thing. It's like, all right, there's this crazy guy on the loose. You're the only one that can help us. Would you, you in? Here, I'm. I've come to the beach to give you this exposition to set yeah. up the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get this out of the way here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, are you the, the, the a bad, are you a bad enough dude to save the president? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the directors now. This interesting is the director's cut changes this slightly the opening where mm-hmm. it actually has the credits start to run over the actual scene which i actually like it better the other way this way the theatrical mm-hmm. way because i do feel like a lot of times now when people go in and re-edit their movies they go oh it needs to be faster it needs to be faster and i yeah. actually like the time taking that creepy opening taking time to go through those credits and then bringing the camera down mm-hmm. and going in and and yeah. opening up on these two th- to these two guys so uh, a little bit of a change there but i prefer the regular this one theatrical Who's the it, uh, Kim Greist is the wife is Will's wife? Yes, right? yes, the great Kim Greist. Yeah, From, uh, and she like had a, Brazil, she had a, right? Yeah, and Chud, and come on, yeah. I, I was I was gonna yeah. say Brandon knows yeah. this one. Chud, I mean, that's Chud. like that's her hidden gem, Chud. dude. Yeah, <laughs> like is there? But much? she had done she had done two episodes though, or one episode of Miami Vice where she played kind mm-hmm. of a a rich girl who was uh, getting uh, Don Johnson's eye kind of thing. So she had already done an episode of Miami Vice. We're again mm-hmm. tying into Miami Vice and Band of the Hand, different actors. That's the thing with man, right? He's using a lot of players from his well, own. Yes. Like Farina, I was going to well. say Dennis yeah. Farina was in Crime Story, which. <laughs> That was right. Michael Mann as well. Right. I mean, and he had that little role in Thief. That little role in Thief. Yeah, uh, see, as, the the gun thief as well. Yeah. That was yeah. his first role, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, because he was like, yes. he, he did just like retired from being a cop. And he was like a consultant, I believe, right? For like, yeah, and they end up using him in the movie because they're like, "Your face says you're an actor, so please act in movies." And he's like, "Yeah, all right," because he's Chicago. That's how he talks. <laughs> um, that's that's my Chicago. That's my two second Chicago. Yeah, all right. Um, Brandon, when, when did you first see Manhunter? You're on mute, baby. Yeah. So okay, <laughs> I. I thought he was speechless. He was like the blue. It's oh. just overtaken. Let, let me tell right. you. <laughs> uh, no, how, uh, how, I'm just real, real quick. How, how much more Michael Mann could this scene be? Right? Oh no, it's, oh. <laughs> it's beautiful. minimalist set design, blue tones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so uh, it was. So I went and saw Red Dragon opening weekend, and uh, you know our film knowledge and this kind of film they kind of distance themselves from this film for quite for a bit it felt and i one of my friends i went with was pissed off after red dragon and he must not have been knowledgeable either he's like that was dude that was the exact same thing as this movie i saw in the 80s called manhunter i was like what's the man you know he's like it was the exact same thing exact same thing what a you know and they call it red and, and then i do my research find out but i'm like oh well okay and then i i rented it uh after that and i was like okay this is this is kind of cooler than what I just saw, but um, well, was, it bombed, not, didn't it? Was, when it oh came no! Out, yes. So here's what it happens. totally bombed. It bombed hard. That De- De La Renna said, "Here, you can go 
you can do silence of the lambs, whoever that one is what it is. And then he spends the rest of his time chasing that silence of the lambs success because he's like, why? But he thought this was tainted property. This Thomas Harris stuff. Well, I mean, of course the irony is that it's so disconnected from its, you know, from its source material, not in terms of, obviously it's very faithful. It's relatively faithful to the book in ways more or less than red dragon. But you know, the fact that, you know, for 99% of the audience, Sons of Lambs was an entirely original picture or at least a new to you, you know, franchise. We'll we'll talk more about the, whether we call it a sequel or not, when we get to the sounds. I was going to say, if I hadn't pretty much lived the multiplex as a teenager in the eighties, I probably wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it was only out for a few weeks. It did not do well. It wasn't like a big hit. No. Well, it, man's cachet for Michael uh, for my device. Well, it was it was very. I don't want to say it was the first serial killer picture of the modern era, but it certainly was unique for you know in terms of a genre that we now take for granted, both in film and television. This was not a conventional crime picture back then. For sure. Uh, even the idea of you know a guy hunting a serial killer was, I would say, unless I'm missing something, mostly the you know, the sandbox of, you know, Charles, periodic Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris movies that were trying to cash in on the slasher craze. Absolutely. This is the first movie I could think of that actually had like an FBI profiler, right? a serial killer profiler. I I mean, I'm sure there might've been movies before that, but this is the first time I'd ever even heard that term. Not going after someone with a gun and having action scenes all the time. That that was exactly going to be one of my questions. Like, are there other films involving forensic science before a movie like this on certainly on a level like this? Because I I can't think of anything that would. Not that I recall. That does feel like exploring the crime specifically. Yeah, that's why the book is so, I mean, the details with which the investigation and Will Graham's mind and learning all that is what the book draws you like right in. And I think man translates it really, really well. Uh, Cause I, it, it just, when I was listening, I listened to the audio book to prepare for this. And I was like, wow, man really just I mean, as much as he did his own thing with it, he really got to the theme and the core of this and knew what was important from the book and what wasn't really well. And um, the book came out in 81, I believe. Yes. And I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure if there's anything like it at the time it's, um, it definitely benefits from being in the satanic panic era of, oh, your neighbor might be a serial killer or all that, you know, all that. It, yeah. It's part of byproduct of that, but it's actually a lot smarter. And it's really, I mean, it's really engaging and has a lot of the forensic stuff is what kind of draws the book. It dies off. There's a Michael Mann made a smart move and cut out this uh, dollar hide backstory with his grandmother from the book from this movie because it's not important. And it's really where the book kind of sinks in the second half but um, which is what was, red dragon tries to pick up on a little bit yeah, yeah it always felt to me like the reason the movie i think didn't do as well is because if you look at the other two pieces that were there which was band of the hand in miami vice mm-hmm. they had style but they were very flippant they were very poppy they were very they're more fun. light I mean, and, and this one had yeah. this one this one had michael mann's style but it was it was it was it was laser focused so it was the performances were there the story was there the oh, you know totally everything agree. was yeah it was it, laser it focused more, and I, I don't think audiences way, way were expecting more, that more, oh, i'm sorry oh no i, I don't think I was audience say, this expected that way more gravitas than like uh that's way it's much heavier it has way more gravitas than like miami vice or right yeah. which, which may i mean not sure. a lot of turn it into a Miami Vice commentary track, but I mean, or as far as the movie goes, but it makes that interesting as far as what he was trying to do with that movie, set it in modern times, use the colors of the past, but make it very much mm-hmm. a Michael Mann movie where it's like, well, 
when you when I think general people general audiences think of Miami Vice, yes, it was a serious cop show, but you know, of the time, there's a level of there's a sense of humor there you can find in it. Right. Yeah. Where, oh, yeah. where you when you make that movie, it's like, yes, Jamie Foxx has a natural charisma, and Colin Farrell is he's a lot in that movie but it's like it's weird <laughs> to like watch that and be like well i mean it's a it's very much a michael mann movie but like something about this just is not there like there's just something, there's something missing out of here well and and speaking of someone who likes the movie i've yeah. seen it once and i don't Scott and I, saw it. It. Scott and I saw it the dollar theater yeah we did <laughs> to me i think it played off to a lot of folks especially those with only casual knowledge of the show as almost a borderline satirical grim dark reboot of a famously Opie color, yeah. Um, and is, is, you know, in this, you know, a it's it's very grim. It's very obviously it's dark considering the subject matter. But compared to, you know, even something like Sansa Lambs, which in its own way is a bit more crowd pleasing, it's a bit pulpier. There's more. It's a more cathartic experience. Um, it has movie star performances. Yes, too. yes. Like, or this one, like that's not a that's not a knock. It's just yeah, this like, is a tone. Yeah, it's a tone. Exactly, it's a tone poem. Like yeah. the nature of a movie like this, you know, William Peterson, he's a stage actor. He's not a yeah. he's the guy yeah. that's focused on the craft and like how who what this character uh, who, how he ticks. That's not again, he, that's not he, to distract from what yeah. Jodie Foster or Anthony Hopkins are doing. But like they know they're like they, the way um, Demi's filming them. It's like they're big on screen, and it's like you're. It's, you're in it in a different kind of way than something like this, where you're you're being drawn into the atmosphere and the mood of the film. By the way, this shot, uh, the shot of the uh, the Elevator. atrium at the Atlanta uh, Marriott, that that is not in the director's cut. That scene was taken out. Mm. I don't know why, but I I always thought it was really beautiful. But that's a cool scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Peter Peterson, man, with this and to live and die in L.A., like he yeah. had the worst. He had two great movies that just didn't yeah go well. But and he was great in them. He should have yeah. been a superstar. Like yeah, right. And he just does. I mean, he's still in stuff, and obviously, oh, yeah. CSI he had CSI for so many years. But, if he yeah. saved any amount of the CSI money, he's probably a trillionaire right now. <laughs> but, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it, in terms of like <clears throat> actors from the 80s that aren't, you know, Arnold or Sly, yeah, he's, you know, he didn't like Bruce Willis as far as being like a guy, a, a generally average looking guy that, you know, launched, propelled into superstardom as a, you know, mm-hmm generic cop guy in various movies he'd be a generic tv cop guy (laughs) you always got the sense when you watched manhunter though that michael mann casts just cast the best actors in the for the the movie none of them were known that you know just just all laser focused on that's why you remember all these actors and then you see them later and you go oh yeah yeah yeah, i know that actor and stuff but it's so it's it it reminds me of a time uh, there was a, a documentary on a casting director um and uh, and it talked about you know how that they would they would they were really for the actor they were looking for great actors and this this movie just exudes that where it's like we're looking for the best actor for the role not the person who has the most clout the person who has the most you know notoriety or whatever just the best actor and then those people all rose to the top so in uh, in terms of my coming to this movie uh, my mom was a huge thomas harris fan she read all the the hannibal novels um of his other thing she liked thomas harrison she liked crime books in general so, um but uh, so i had seen silence of the lambs at a fairly early age um but i'd also um i've read the book but i also we we there was a lot in kind of like drives to school um we would listen to um one of the the audiobook version of silence of the lambs which was narrated by uh this version was uh kathy bates which was oh, really which was really neat that's, that's like, nice. I'd already, like i already like i'd seen the film at this point and i knew the novel uh 
Maybe because I just took it from her to read it because I was like, well, I like this movie a lot. Uh, so like hearing it that way, it's like, well, this is really neat too. That's like the first audiobook I've ever listened to, honestly. So eventually I was finally able to like come to this movie. Um, I was visiting with my one of my uncles once and he had a copy of it. I never, I'd, I'd like known about Manhunter, but I'd never actually seen it. This is probably, I want to say 2000, because it was before Red Dragon. So I want to say 2000, 2001. And I watched it and it was such a stark difference as far as the kind of movie that it is, even though I know it's like the same author and has that same, like, you know, kind of st- like, you know, having a like professional cop guy, serial killer and Hannibal Lecter. So it was neat to see this version of that kind of story again and done in such a distinct way. And at that time I had seen like heat already. I'd seen um, uh, in, in uh, the insider. So I was like, okay, yeah, I see where, I see where, how this comes from those or mm-hmm. those come from this, but it just felt so like odd and different to me. And then eventually I saw red dragon. I'm like, <laughs> All right, well, so that's like the cover of her. I get it. Okay, so they're like that. It like it that made me like this movie even more. I mean, to be, now, to be clear, because we haven't talked about Red, we'll, we'll talk about Red Dragon two yeah. months from now. Yeah. I don't dislike that movie, but I mean, scrap. Sorry, what? It's you know, Michael. It's, yeah, it's, it's this is a Michael Mann like masterpiece yeah. versus that. Yeah. Movie. <laughs> I remember at the time they asked Ratner. They said, "Well, what, there was two specific questions I remember his answers to. It was, it was what, uh, you know, what, what about you know the fact that Michael, you know, what makes you think this, you know, Michael Mann film, you know, that you wanted to redo it? And he was like, "Oh, nobody remembers that movie." And I'm like, "Oh, I named my kid after that movie." And then they said, "What gives you the clout to want to direct that movie?" And he said, "I did the Family Man with Nick Cage." like oh yeah okay that's it it. enough said right there so we're good (laughs) some filmmakers a lot of filmmakers should just let the work speak for themselves thank you that's why he doesn't (laughs) talk about after the sunset (laughs) um yeah shrimp (laughs) um another thing you know this Picture. Oh, he, oh, by the way, in this scene, real no. quick, the director's cut, he does come up in uh, in the meeting and uh, Will Grant and talks. I actually like it better this way because it leaves him more ominous and creepy. Mm-hmm. And so when he he actually reveals a couple of things to these detectives and then they find, they find out it's correct, it makes it more creepy. I like it better this yeah. way. Um, and this is also, you know, by default, I suppose, the only Thomas Harris filmed adaptation where Hannibal isn't either at the center of the story or a very major element of the story. Um, now, to be fair, he's only in 27 minutes of Sansa Lands, but it certainly feels like more. Yeah, uh, and he, Red he Dragon... Won, he, he won a lead actor Oscar, yeah, so you yeah, know, which, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite films, but <laughs> if I were Nick Nolte, I'd be so pissed off. Because first he loses the Hannibal Lecter for, you know, he had the Hopkins for, let's be fair, a supporting performance, and then he loses Roberto Benigni. <laughs> A triumph that they everyone in the audience was like, "Oh God, we made a terrible mistake before we even got to the stage." Oh, um, anyway, al- he al- hey, he also screen tested and got turned down for the role of Han Solo. So there's that. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, but I think this film stands out as being, you know, just by default, being about a cop who hunts a serial killer. And the idea that he eventually goes to consult another serial killer who he has a history with is almost a digression. Um, and that's certainly because, you know, especially comparatively speaking, Brian Cox is much less of a conventional horror movie boogeyman. Um, certainly in the ways, I mean, I, you know, yeah. this is the first one they are doing. It's not like there's a gravitas that comes with Hannibal already. It's no, like- no. And that's, you know, it's, it's, 
um, in terms of why this but didn't quite like break it out. I, I will say this about Brian Cox when we get to this point. He's the only Hannibal Lecter I've ever seen that I actually plausibly believe is a working psychiatrist who actually, you know, sees patients and writes prescriptions and all that stuff. I mean, Mads Mickelson is, he, he's, he, I can see him as a like, he and He and Gabriel Byrne on the HBO show could probably hang out on the week. <laughs> <laughs> what's the in treatment right that's the show yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i mean even expanding on the point that scott was making as as short a time as cox is in this movie mm-hmm. it's a huge impression I, I would even say that the three performances this movie really turns on would be uh peterson tom noonan and uh, and cox you know i mean in my opinion anyway absolutely and i notice how all three of those performances you just listed none of them are one note they're all layered no matter how much screen time they have, which is a total testament, not only to their work as actors, but to, to you know, the vision that Michael Mann had. So amazing. By the way, uh, we're going into little Freddie Lowndes area here and I uh, have to make that connection now. So of course, uh, of course, Stephen Lang, who plays yep. Freddie, Freddie Lowndes, he was one of the leads in Band of the Hand, of course, <laughs> playing Joe Tegra in Band of the Hand, the Native American Vietnam vet. And then he did go on to do Crime Story and uh, Public Enemies with, with Michael Mann. And a hidden gem, by the way, for uh, for Stephen Lang, uh, Injun Joe in Band of Robbers. If you've I watched Band that, of Robbers. Great yeah. performance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is early Stephen Lang. This is um, early Stephen yeah. Lang because like, I feel like Stephen Lang, despite not being you know, a huge marquee star. The yeah. image he has now is so different than the image so, he has in this. Oh, like, yeah. in, like, no doubt. Tomb, in like, Tombstone. So. Like, he's such, he's such a, like, p- pathetic, like, dweeb yeah. in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's or like, in Tombstone, he's like, right? Yeah, in Tombstone. He, in here, he's like the, he's like the more annoying version of a William Atherton character. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, um, when you get to, like, 2009, oh, 2008 or 9, and, like, Public Enemies and, and, uh, and uh, Avatar, it's like, now he's like jacked and he's like his, you know steely hair and he like he's, he's about to like beat you up if you look at him the wrong way Here we have like skinny He'll arms work. william peterson throwing him against a car yeah. <laughs> he will always be the party crasher in the hard way to oh, me oh so good yes yes another another yes amazing Just performance really random that was the first thing i really noticed him in so good oh <laughs> um we haven't t- have we talked for rena at all this is one of his more you know he's dramatic, and then he get kind of silly roles. Yeah, he's not very funny in this one. No, <laughs> I will say I'm related to this, and I've, I've always felt this way. Nobody says the f word funnier than Dennis Farina. Oh yeah, because oh, he yeah. he's like so Chicago. Yeah. Like, yeah, he walks in. He's got his. He you know, was an actual police captain, yes. right? Yeah, he's a. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, we talked about. It. Yeah, I said yeah. he was. He's yeah. he retired yeah. police at this point, and he just he's in movies, and he's doing like, and yeah, it, it's. What's the show he's on eventually? What does he get into? Oh, he does Law and Order for Law the order, yeah. Law and Order for a while. Yeah, okay. Uh, he takes over after Jerry Orbach dies. Uh-huh. But like, by the way, I will say um, uh, when he says in, in "recover the mindset" and then we go right into this scene, which is great. Yes. There is director's cut. There is a, a scene on the phone between him and the wife, which again feels redundant. Like I love how this goes mm-hmm. right into this. Um, what we're talking about with uh, with Brian Cox there. What I love about it is that his performance and Anthony Hopkins performance are so completely different that they're yeah. both allowed to exist. One is yes. very understated and one is very overstated. So to just say, Oh, this person is Hannibal Lecter. It's like, 
two completely different takes on the same character and they're both amazing so it's incredible that hannibal rising would come through and top them both (laughs) (laughs) they really set the bar so high what 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 it's february it's gaspar (laughs) i didn't want to say anything but i'm not sure i want to participate in that commentary (laughs) scott you lost that years ago that you don't remember where we said if we're going to do hannibal rising one day you have to be on that commentary so that's that's fine i'll bring i'll find some alcohol I might have something. <laughs> what I something I something I really like about the Hannibal like aspect of this film is yes, like part, the part of silence is that he's getting into her mind, and that's why yeah. he looms so much over the picture. Where this, mm-hmm. it's about trauma. Like Will doesn't want to be here. <laughs> like it's yeah. he doesn't want to be involved mm-hmm. with this person who's caused him a lot of pain. But he's like, well, this is the this is the kind of guy I am. This is how I can do my thing. And he has to go and seek this guy out. So now it's like. The guy's already, you know, he's an empath. He's already like dealing with this tooth fairy like figure and that this the the damage that's doing to his mind. He's like, now I got to re- open old wounds. So it's like, yeah, you're getting two different Hannibal performances, but you have like a character. You know, the interaction between the characters also just has such a neat uh, dynamic uh, by comparison. Looking at William Peterson versus Jodie Foster and how they well, relate I, to this guy. Well, I like about Cox here is like, you know, th- no matter how hard. Will Graham tries to control the situation. He's got the upper hand every the whole the way through. And just looking at him, for some reason, you just feel like those clothes don't feel right on him. Like you can imagine he was a much fancier, like you know, just doesn't look right. Like he's not comfortable right. in the in asylum clothes. Whereas, which is which, le- which is which is, which Scott's, is where Scott's, uh, Scott's comment about the uh, about the being a psychiatrist. I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. Hopkins, Hopkins looks way comfortable in those. Yeah. Like, this isn't what i wear to the point where he almost looks unnatural in the red dragon prologue where he's all dressed up like a fancy society guy right. yeah uh, Hopkins, like that, that comes down to like direction and mood yeah right? I mean, Hopkins, that's, Hopkins that's is not unlike like nicholson and shining yeah. it's like yeah they're they're gonna get up to, regardless of how much you know about them you can look at them and be like yeah, they got problems. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it comes down to the director too, because Demi's it, interested in yeah, you know, Lecter, while you know uh, Graham is you know what man is more interested. Yeah, in. and yeah, that's exactly. And you know, come what may, especially in comparison to the films and TV shows that followed, you know, these conversations, while entirely gripping and engrossing, are so much more low key. They're so matter of fact. Mm. You know, he doesn't even get much of an entrance. It's sort of they cut to the, he's in the prison, he's sitting there just out of the camera view. Mm-hmm. And then they just, I, I was yeah. just going to say one of my favorite lines in the whole movie we, we just talked over is, uh, uh, you know, he says, you, know, you caught me because you, you think you're smarter than me because you caught yeah. me. He goes, no, I, I don't think I was smarter than you. You have certain disadvantages. And he says, like, what? And he goes, you're insane. Yeah. And there was just a pause. And that pause where they just look at each other is just like one of those golden moments, just really mm-hmm. great. And it's something that makes Hannibal such a fascinating character. And I mean, there's more to talk about as we get to more Hannibal-focused movies. But <laughs> the idea that he can both acknowledge this, but also be like, well, at the same time, I'm pretty, you know, I, my, I got my wits about me. I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I, I, I had not to mention the the uh, the score here underneath, which is the Reds and Michael Rubini. And again, going back to the Reds did Miami Vice, four songs for Band of the Hand, then into Manhunter and Rubini, of course, did Band of the Hand and then into Manhunter. Some really great instrumental stuff. Um, obviously, you know, keeping on that same uh, style that he was using <laughs> in Miami Vice, the synthesizer stuff. But I do think to much more emotional um, uh, relevancy in Manhunter. 
I'm really excited that all the band of the hand fans are going to be really like into this commentary track. <laughs> it's there. It's attached whether you like it or not. <laughs> so, so this is one of Brian Cox's first films too, right? He's, he's mm. not too seasoned at this point as far as being right. an actor. They did, right. Like I imagine he did like stage and stuff before. Yes. Too, right? yeah. Yes. And it was, think... it was, I heard a, uh, there's that story of course that oh, may, most amazing shot ever. And of course this is the, um, <laughs> this is the, 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 uh, in, um, Atlanta, the um, uh, the High Museum of Art in in Atlanta, Georgia, is still there. Oh my God, so amazing! Um, the uh, no, there was a story about Brian Dennehy and how he yeah. had worked on Jericho Mile with Michael Mann, and he wanted that part, but he yeah. was like, "I'm such a good friend. I know somebody who could play that part better." And it was a stage play that uh, Brian hmm. Cox was in. And he went to see him, and that's how he got it. Well, a couple of there was one other person, right? There, were... there was some other people. A couple, yeah, the, the, yeah. a couple people. They have uh, John Lithgow was considered, yeah, that was which it. you yeah, can, that you was can it. see that easily working easily, yeah. Um, and then he did it obviously in one of the best um, shows ever, uh, Dexter, of course. And um, <laughs> it's coming back because of how good it ended. And um, <laughs> at least he, he was he was at the end of the good stuff of Dexter, though. I suppose. <laughs> that's another commentary <laughs> uh mandy patinkin was uh attached mm. um, oh yeah that would have been a good mm. hannibal lecter right there when he was still clean shaven not in, uh, after before he had the that beard uh, permanently attached to his face <laughs> and um the weird one william friedkin was like <laughs> the, the, yeah william friedkin was attached to like was, yeah i heard the, that like, yeah wow. like so which is weird to me because it isn't like I don't think there's an actual feud between them, but doesn't it seem like there's like this thing that's like between man and Friedkin as far as. That's why Peterson has those roles. They were suggested. Like, I think man told him to go check Peterson out in a play because he was trying to cast his lease as you want this guy. He's doing some generic play or like, like Hamlet. And he's like, Oh, come on, do it. Everybody's. And then he was amazed by him. So he cast him and then man ended up casting him here. Which That'd be something. <laughs> I don't know. That's. I sense this is Jim's. I don't know why. I just sense this is Jim's favorite scene. Like the the. the what do you think, Jim? <laughs> I, love, I do love this scene. I mean, this is like it kind of shows. It shows his evil genius, though. You know, I mean, mm. it's just like this is the kind of. I don't know. I read the book too, but not as recently as Brandon. And this uh, rang more true to me as something that he would have done than, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the Anthony Hopkins version or whatever, at least as far as this book is concerned. So, mm-hmm. but nice. I really, again, I did really like the scene. And this, this was the first time I'd ever seen Brian Cox. And it made such an impression on me. Like mm-hmm. every time I ever saw him afterwards, I'm like, oh, wait, that's the guy who played Lecter and Manhunter. Um, L-E-C-K-T-O-R. I need to watch what he's doing because he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, hidden gems yeah. for let's say hidden gems for Brian Cox would be uh, LIE, the Long Island Expressway, and The Escapist. Great work, man. Of course, you know him as Striker from X Men Two, but those two, uh, those, awesome. those two hidden gems. <laughs> those he are my is favorite. terrific, and and I barely remember this movie. It's something called Red, where he played mm. a oh, oh, oh with an old Vince guy, and, and yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's, it's no, 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 uh, no, no, not that. I apologize. Different red. It's about a, a, an old guy whose dog is killed by a bunch of young hooligans, and he does the whole death wish thing with bad consequences. Oh wow! Never. Um, yeah. 
he he's in both reds, which is why it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, he is. Yeah, I he's so he like, an what? old guy, an old That's guy, right. a violent guy in red too. So the other red. So sorry. Now, no, no, I'm wondering if that's the actual title of the movie. No, oh, it is. Okay. I I'm, I know what you're talking about. Scott. Yeah, it has, it has Sizemore in it too, right? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and I think Kyle Gallner basically playing exactly the type. Oh, so it's so Tom Sizemore plays like a loving dad, and Kyle Gallner is like his jock son. No, no, he's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slow tonight. Mm. That's the that's the best, that's, that's the best character actor joke you'll hear tonight. <laughs> well, Scott, was it was it you was it you who was like, hey, Scream Five at least in the cast or doesn't look like an obvious killer? And I was like, Scott, they cast Kyle Gallner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what I what I, I mean. This is kind of rare as far as Brian Costco's like because he, he generally plays like you know like an authority figure or like a mentor kind of guy or someone that's gonna like get in your face and yell at you and, the, and or like or like a snake like but this like evil genius is like that seems like you know a stray for him as far as that goes because when I think of Brian Cox I generally think of like his random period epic movies where he plays like the second guy that's in command of things like Braveheart or Rob Roy which I love. Or like Agamemnon and Troy. Not the Uh, dad at home eating popcorn watching the horror marathon? Wait for his (laughs) daughter's plane to land? I keep thinking of that line from Long uh, Long Kiss Which is red. That one's red. (laughs) I. <laughs> got three red movies, guys. <laughs> wow. I keep thinking of that 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 um that scene in Long Kiss Goodnight where he's talking about the dog and he's like, it's either mm-hmm. it's either it, it, it's either long gone or there to stay. Yeah. He's the Liam second. Peterson is rocking those pink shorts there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do like that he like gets to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <gets> to... <laughs> like, also it's... rocking the also rocking the I didn't get to shave this morning look like Along with Don Johnson, far before it became uh, mm-hmm. living in a houseboat. He seems like a guy where he like he make he makes his hair salt and pepper. Like it doesn't just happen <laughs> that way. It's like I'm gonna do this myself. Uh, Look out for the seagulls. Oh. So just listening for white squall in this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think what's happening here is very funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this whole oh yeah this is the yeah. this is the kind of scene you'd see today in like the news story somewhere like local man yeah. watches yeah. Saw, saw five next to kid in a plane seat. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um so we is this, is this the this is the, okay great oh nice great slow motion here by the way too. Yeah. just watching all this the like this is i mean we did our seven commentary not too long ago like there's the the creepiness is like I mean we'll get we haven't even got to Tom Noonan yet I mean as far as like a lot of him but the crime scene stuff is not unlike something like what Fincher does with Seven as far as we're not seeing the actions taken we're watching the results which are also just eerie and mm-hmm. he creates a especially especially given like the minimalist design of a man movie and like you know s- specific colors so when you have just red splatters and gore it like stands out because it's very much designed to do that. Yeah. It's very much designed to feel uh, otherworldly, I guess, as far as like the, the violation of the natural order and the violation of like the symmetry of all of these scenes. Yeah. It's, it's just like, you know, we have a square and suddenly there's like some kind of like fucking freeform abstract thing thrown on top of it. It's like, I don't know. Now, did you guys, uh, I have the theatrical cut rolling from, from a, from an iTunes thing, but there was a scene in there that I don't remember from the theatrical cut, but I wasn't sure if you guys saw it was the scene where he introduces him into the house. Did you see that? 
Uh, no. Yeah, okay. So, so then it was added on here because there's a scene with Michael Talbot in that house where he sort of shows him around the house. Michael Talbot, of course, from Miami Vice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not in the original theatrical cut that I remember. But he's in, yeah, he's I, in the woods right now. Okay. So, so then, so then that scene in this, in this thing was added, but I know it was in the director's cut. So it's interesting that I'm watching this iTunes theatrical and it's in there. So. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a scene that is always, you know, even when I was a kid, it stood out as it's on its face. It's very silly, but this, because this is one of the first kind of movies of this nature, you kind of had to make what he's doing very obvious to the audience. So instead of him quietly sitting there in the tree and, you know, profiling, he's literally screaming at the, you know, you touched her, you had to touch her, didn't you? Oh, you took off. Um, and it is almost campy, but even, you know, when I first saw this, I, I get it. This is the first of its kind. They kind of have to walk people through how this kind of thing, how, what his mind looks like. Even then, it also speaks to who he, like, you know, Will's not a normal guy. I no, think that's no. made very clear to us already. Like, he seems like a guy that, like I mentioned trauma already. Like, he's a guy yeah. that's seen a lot of shit and he, yeah. just, he does not like it, but he's very good at doing something with that. And it, I mean, letting that come out. Yeah, I get you know, if if you were to put this into a theater today, yeah, I'd imagine there'd be like laughter at the, that kind of scene. But it speaks to the kind of guy he is, as far as how he's working out his you know his case. Well, it also depends how into the movie the, the audience is. If of course, yeah. It, no, I'm, I'm speaking in it. the most stereotypical audience. Right. that would like you know giggle and laugh at certain kind of things. The the audience that I mean, laughs at all. That or have, I was going to say it's either that or have like constantly talking to his. Uh, um, tape recorder which he also does a lot in this movie but i mean i'd rather do that than like have that kind of thing they had in the sherlock bbc's thing where it's all the floating words in his face <laughs> where he's profiling and stuff well i like it just goes to show the the sort of madness brewing in will graham and your his constant you know dive into is he gonna is he gonna be turned like himself because he's so involved in becoming trying to get in the mindset of dollar hide the whole film and, and that's and the struggle. earnestness and the earnestness and commitment of that performance i think mm-hmm. i think speaks volumes as to why you follow that character and why you why you believe in that character mm-hmm. um peterson just he nails it man every scene yeah. is intense Right. And I mean, the, the director's cut has a different ending that uh, well, I guess we'll get to when we get there. But it's right. it's almost it's pretty much earned from what the story man has told in this. Like it feels it feels honest. It doesn't feel like just shock value. And that's through Peterson's performance, probably as well. Since we're talking about Peterson, I mean, we mentioned already that he's in to live and die or LA, to live and die in L.A., which he gets he gets cast in this based off of like footage that man sees of that movie. So it's like mm-hmm. it's before that movie even comes out. It's just like watching dailies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> again, much very, very different performances like he plays, you know. I don't even know if anti-hero is enough to say it into live and die in L.A. He's like a bad he's a bad cop. Like he's a bad guy. Like he's trying to do his job, mm-hmm. but he also wants to. You know, <laughs> he, he wants something out of this as well. So this is playing the most emotional guy uh, who's, whose whole life is devoted right. to stopping murderers and doing everything right. It, it is neat to see. I mean, you have two great powerhouse performances from this guy who's just zoned in. And then, he, you know, just doesn't do much with that in terms of like movies at that place. Like, yeah, he gets a few roles here and there, but then, he, you know. Maybe he just—it's possibly just like the theater too, but I think that's a big part of it. He's, you know, yeah. he's—he's he's, these are all—he's—it's man. So these are all Chicago guys. Like they're all guys that are from the stage. Um, but you know, 
the the time we got to have William Peterson in major leading roles, it's not phoning it in. That's for sure. No, <laughs> he's doing, he's no. doing the work, and he's doing very, very interesting, you know, different stuff. And it isn't interesting that he would go and end up doing Gil Grissom, which of course has to do with forensics and some of the stuff that they touch upon in this movie. And he, I mean, he kind of forced, and, and by the way, uh, you were, t- you were saying, Oh, uh, you know, he probably made a ton on that. He did not only his acting, yeah. but he jumped, he jumped on his executive producer. Oh, so yeah. even when, yeah. it, even when he wasn't on the show, he was making money. <laughs> yeah. He's smart. He knew that that show yeah. was going to be good from day one. So, which is funny. Cause yeah. when that premiered, that was the B show. Everybody right. CBS thought the fugitive remake was going to be their biggie. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, did this one get paid? Did CSI got paired with Survivor, and that really helped. Uh, I believe it was already a solid. I, I I will take your word for that. I do know it was already a pretty solid hit by the time they ended the first season. Came I remember out. that was like their Thursday night. I believe. Yeah. CBS was Survivor, but when it premiered, CSI. it was Friday at nine after the Fugitive. That's right. Uh, That's right. Because I was watching. I I, I was going to say it wasn't on the night it was on because I I remember um, watching it from day one just for Peterson because I'm such a huge fan. So. Um. Just like, for example, you know, seven years earlier, Fox had a Friday night lineup that was had a surefire hit in uh, Bruce Campbell's Briscoe County Jr. Mm-hmm. and some other goofy UFO whatever show that nobody was going to watch. By the way, all these scenes, you know, in the in the thing, they actually used, uh, you know, FBI uh, equipment and, and locations and stuff like that. Great stuff. Um, Michael Mann, very authentic in the in the stuff mm-hmm. that he was using and stuff. When they get also awesome. like having been fresh off the book, um, there's also you know man making the decision to stay with Peterson and and hold off on Dollar Hyde because he enters yeah. the book a lot earlier. And right. there, there's some interrogation uh, stuff with the uh, some like a son of one of the murder victims because mm-hmm. there's two different spots. They goes to Atlanta and I think Alabama for them. No, you're you're absolutely right. He's right. in Alabama now, right? To the extent yeah. that Lecter is a more comparatively subdued presence and Chilton's right now at least is basically an exposition machine right yeah it's this movie nothing is in this movie. all about will yeah i mean it's not relying on lecter it's not relying on you know the other killer whether it's jamie gum or dolaride uh and certainly you know chilton is not the somewhat arch character that he is in some of the other ones this is just the will graham show period yeah um which is i mean that's gen- that's pretty. I mean, for as you, oh, that's fine. For as no, I did, but yeah, for, for yeah. unique as this film is, as far as the dedication to showing forensic yeah. science or what have you, it's a cop movie. Like it's about a cop. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's doing its cop thing. I mean, it, right. it, it it's it's interesting how you know man is playing. By the way, look at this shot right here. Jim's just making <laughs> yeah. man staples right here, just all black and blue, Love very it. focused. Love it. <laughs> and uh, switching right over back. to a completely different color on the other side. <laughs> uh, but I mean. It's doing it's doing things that are you know unique as far as the kind of cop work that's being seen and the eventual stuff involving the serial killer, but it's also doing stuff that man is you like the audiences are used to as far as before we're getting like major action movies. We've talked about this before, Brandon. We were getting you know cop dramas, cop right. Yeah, you know this is you know this is eighty six, so it's starting to blend in with the Schwarzenegger stuff and the Sly stuff. But like mm-hmm. you're, you're still getting like you know another bullet, another French yeah. connection. Bill, yeah, exactly. uh, Bill Smitrovich, by the way, the uh, the tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to go, again. Have to go back uh, Matt, um, uh, for Miami Vice. It was crucial. He was in episode <laughs> one, the pilot, um, and he was the turncoat character that uh, was the one who was giving information. Who turned on Don Johnson's character? He was a former mm-hmm. partner, so a major part in the start of Miami Vice was in Band of the Hand, and of course went on to do uh, 
to do crime stories. And uh, Corky's dad on Life Goes On. On Life Goes On, yeah. <laughs> is, and I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to. Is there a reason why the name Lecter is spelled differently in different properties? That, that sounds like the De Laurentiis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I have no <laughs> idea why it's spelled different on this one He's than like, it is but, anywhere for, else. For, well, like, there's two things. Let's talk about Dino De, La, De Laurentiis for a bit. Um, yeah. As far as his Because <laughs> for one, obviously this movie's called Manhunter. It's based off a book called Red Dragon. Right. Um, De Laurentiis produced Year of the Dragon, which flops. Yes. Flop. Right. The Chimino film with Mickey Rourke. And so at that point, Dino De Laurentiis is like, no, we cannot do another dragon film. And so he changes the title. <laughs> also, they wanted to avoid making it think like some kind of Cold War melodrama. Yeah, or something fantastical. He yeah. wanted, you know, he wants it to be like Manhunt, cop movie. Yeah. Done. We got it. That's all we need. Uh, and so he changes the title. And I, I can't, I'd be curious to see, because Michael, this is his third movie. He's coming off of Thief, which is a hit. The Keep is a thing that he tries not to even talk about. Um, so like, I'm curious how much I love the keep. I'm sorry, I (laughs) actually love that movie, I really do. Well, it's it's wild and weird, and uh, I I, I like it. It's funny how the importance of a title is you know, it's always it's still important, but like back then, it was like you had to have something that kind of told what it was about, and someone could just look up and see a title on a little board behind a person at the booth and be like. Well, that sounds interesting from the title. So like Red Dragons might maybe not going to sell despite people knowing everything. It was like, oh, our oh, Manhunter. Okay. Yeah. You, you, tons of man. Got it. I like Man Eater <laughs> by all well, notes. I, mean, I might well like Manhunter. I mean, plus, I mean, that's a good way to quickly get across the idea. I mean, like we said, there hadn't been too many FBI profiler movies or shows before this. Mm-hmm. You want to get the idea of what this guy is doing across in a quick way. That's what I mean. Chris Elliott. Is that Chris Elliott? Yeah, that oh is Chris God. Elliott. It is. Yep. Early Chris Elliott, yeah. <laughs> Just With a beard. Every time. With a beard. <laughs> he, brings, he brings the comedy every time. Okay. <laughs> oh, look at him in the back. Oh, God. It's great. What, oh, I, what I what I was wondering though is if if you know at this point with man how much control he kind of had. Like obviously you know watching this movie it looks like the movie man wanted to make. But I'm curious how much he butted heads with De Laurentiis who considering there's a noticeably different director's cut. Man, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. They're, I mean, but even then, I mean, watch it. Well, here's a question: Do you prefer the theatrical cut? Yes, I've watched it, I've watched it more. There's aspects I do like of the director's cut, but I think. Yeah, it's called the Sazu. Director's cut feels a little self-indulgent to me. Like it feels a little it's it's funny because you snip and you're snipping some scenes. So you go, oh no, no, it's gotta be faster, it's gotta be faster. But there's a lot of exposition that doesn't really need to be there. A lot of scenes with the wife um that don't need to be there. We get enough from their relationship um to 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 taste. Um yeah, I, I definitely prefer the theatrical guy. And let me also say quality-wise, obviously there's been a number of DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff that come out of this movie, Laserdisc, whatnot. I did show Will Graham, my Will Graham, a, the movie on his 18th birthday in a theater, which I won't tell you which, on film. And I did test all the different the different uh, ways to play it. And because for some reason, I, there was a 35 mil print. Um, and that was the best way to watch that movie. It was the crispest. It was, it was the cleanest. It was mm-hmm. amazing. So uh, a 35 mil see, v- visual of that movie is just, it's stunning. It puts all the other, the Scream Factory, the, the Anchor Bay stuff, it puts it all to shame. Well, I bet. I mean, he shoots for the big screen. So yeah. 
That's, that's one thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people shoot wide like this nowadays. You watch, and it's like, are they just doing that as a thing? Cause yeah. it doesn't really, they don't really know how to fill up a frame. They're like, well, that's the, the cool movies. The epic movies all look like that. So we shoot like them. Like, do you have a reason to shoot like that? Do you know what you're doing? And yeah. Cause I mean, these movies, even when you're at home, if they're shot, well, they feel big. Like that's a, that's the thing you want to see them in the theater, of course, but there's some movies that are from greater like Kubrick movies always feel big, even if I'm watching them at home, you know, but I think man has that kind of ideal too. So the thought I was trying to, I mean, as far as man making this movie and making it feel like a man movie versus having uh, De Laurentiis be on, who's a, He's a pretty hands-on producer, if I if I seem to understand things right. So I, I, I'm curious how much butting it's, heads they had as yeah. far as trying to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. It's funny going back through the Fellini set and hearing De Laurentiis brought up with, you know, high prestige Italian films of the 1950s and 60s and then mostly associating him with his like 70s and 80s output. Which is, I mean, there's it's a lot bad, of good. But there's a lot of good that came out of De Laurentiis yeah. stuff. It's just he seemed like a he seemed like a big personality. Yeah, but it would be interesting. I mean, just as it would with Michael Mann versus Man, you know, versus him on Manhunter, it would also be interesting for uh, you know David Lynch, you know, doing Blue Velvet. You know, I yeah. mean, that's I mean, that's really out there. And then how much freedom did he give David to do that movie? And Wait, looking at dailies, nice. and I mean, that would be an even more interesting story. So I think there's there's tons of extra footage for, for Twin Peaks. I mean. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> or, funny, I'm sorry, Lynch, for, for, uh, Blue Velvet. I well, mean, Blue, Blue Velvet. Velvet. Every Lynch film has so much extra footage. Um, and I, I, it's weird cause I was just talking about him on my show this week that I'm like Lynch, it's odd that his career has, it, I feel like he's gotten to aside from like Dune maybe, but he's gotten to make everything the way he's kind of wanted it. You know, it's weird that he's been allowed his whole career to just granted He doesn't have tons of films. that wasn't making them all the time, but every film of his feels he's like also, he's not asking for the world when he makes movies. I right. not, you know, he's not right. making, but you he's know, making his, his, some, his, 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 sure. His, it, yeah. Polarizing stuff. So he is, but like, it feels like people trust David Lynch to be David Lynch and right. they, they could probably set a, you know, he's going to come in on a certain, but he probably works well with people. I think that's another thing. I think he, yeah. he's, he's a very, I think he's a very professional kind of guy. That's the impression I get as far mm-hmm. as how he conducts his sets. So, you know, gets things in on time, doesn't cause any trouble. They can afford to have him do his own little thing in the corner while, you know, they have their other bigger studio things that, you know, will make profit. <laughs> Anyway, Stephen Lang's being a jerk. Lang, his baggy <laughs> pants. David Lynch was considered for this movie, by the way. Yeah, that's oh, okay. oh man, so strange. <laughs> next time, next time, next time we see Stephen Lang, he's in a wheelchair flying down a parking lot yeah. driveway, right? <laughs> There's more stuff with Freddie Lowndes in the novel too. Like, like you get a background of like his girlfriend, who he kind of is. But um, you know, do you guys think this? Uh, I, I was thinking about this. Is is Red Dragon considered like a great American novel? I mean, it's been adapted to film you know, multiple times, and uh, it's a good it, novel. It's like, hey, I can get a Hannibal Lecter thing made. Exactly. I think you know, you have this film because it was a good novel, and why not make a movie out of it? Mm-hmm. Then after Sons of the Lambs became huge, you know, well, let's do that with Hopkins. And yeah, yeah, add some of the backstory that was cut out of this film, comparatively speaking. But there's Hannibal in between, and then there's too, the t- so. yeah, and then there's the TV show, which mm-hmm. the, what the last half of the third season was basically doing the story. Yeah. So 
yeah, I, I, it's a well, it's always been a very well-regarded novel, a very of it, not ahead of its time, but certainly, you know, somewhat groundbreaking in terms of a genre that would, you know, come of age. But I think, you know, the reason that's been adapted three times is just happenstance. Or just because the second, you know, like a lot of franchises, the second one went crazy and now everybody thinks everything's a, you know, let's, you know, expand upon this until we all get tired of it. Well, it's Hannibal Lecter. I mean, they went, they went in the character almost, almost in in popularity, not, not the the, the quality of the film. They seeded Silence of the Lambs. So they went, that's why even Red Dragon's even made because they were like, oh, we can cash grab and just stick Hopkins in there, which made no sense, by the way, because again, (laughs) that story, he's supposed to be younger than he is in Silence of the Lambs. Made no sense, but that's fine. It's fine. Well, that feels like some (laughs) internet, like fanboy message board wish today. Like, I need to just do that and make it with Hopkins when you you don't need to. But well, Hannibal was so I can't stand other people playing different parts in my canon. Oh, Uh, I mean, Hannibal opened, you know, almost 10 years ago with, excuse me, 20 years ago, 20 years, uh, 58 million dollars, which at the time was the third or fourth biggest opening weekend ever for any movie. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know, a breakout sequel 10 years after Silence of the Lambs. Um, but it was, it was just so successful that Laurentius just couldn't resist taking one more bite of the apple. Um, and well, I, you know, commercially, well, I don't blame him. We'll have more to say about Hannibal at the time. Because yeah, it's, it's like, there's a lot of like win factors in there as far as why yeah. it would be a hit. And then there's a lot of other factors as to why it's also not a hit. <laughs> but, yeah. um, uh, By the way, there's also a scene in here um, that comes in between the, the the newspaper thing and the other thing where it's a scene where Molly comes to visit Will Graham um, in the hotel and they kind of have a scene together. Again, a, a scene that I, I, I never felt like when I had watched that original theatrical cut and didn't know this one, you know, the director's cut existed. I never felt like their relationship wasn't enough to keep me going. Like it, what, what they showed, I felt was more than enough to give you the vibe and the feel that Will Graham had and that life he had, you know, outside of being a profiler and stuff. So those scenes just felt like more exposition that you didn't really need. So. I, yeah. I mean, it's you know it's interesting to think of like what because he by doing that I'm trying to think of like his logic as far as wanting to have more of the the family life of Will involved, but you know based off how this movie ends like it's I can you know it changes things based off where the book is versus where this movie is right so it I feel like you it seems like he wants to get this family emphasis as if it could happen to Will which. I mean, it, it's not going to kind of take that form. So it doesn't really matter ultimately. I like, I don't know. I don't, I mean, maybe just really <laughs> this stuff he shot with Kim Grease. I, I love Kim Grease, by the way. So <laughs> I, I think part of it is, you know, at the end of the day, this film is basically a character study of Will Graham. The shot. So, oh, yeah. Um, Like I will immediately knows it's not him. It's like, eh, right. we did it wrong. <laughs> what colors? And let's talk a little bit about, you know, just looking at the visuals on this, I would say, you know, talking a little bit about Dante Spinati, of, of course, uh, 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 that that would be something that great that came out of De Laurentiis, bringing, you know, some Italians over to, to, to do the, you know, to do the work. And Spinati's work is just, oh man, it's so good. The visuals on this, and of course, they ended up working together on Heat and Last of the Mohicans, and but he did end up shooting Red Dragon, which was interesting. Huh. So it was interesting to. I'm sure. I'm curious how how that 
what the differences were for him in terms of shooting the same material, but with a different director in a different way. It's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good trick. I mean, this is... Don't park next to a van. Similar move played. Don't park next to a van. Similar move played with um, Silence of the Lambs as far as strategies for these killers. And even in the editing, as far as like showing you like, you know, the one side of thing feels like they got their guy and they're wrong. While the other side is, this is what's actually happening here with the killer. Yeah. So Tom Noonan um, is a big giant man. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and it feels like he's been inserted onto our planet and just keeps popping up in things you're like yeah that's our tom noonan yeah like he just he he's never bad in things he seems like he's probably a perfect gentleman in real life but he's absolutely creepy and most he's of very things. serious <laughs> about his craft he's one of those yeah, oh. very very serious <laughs> about his craft i think what i just saw him in recently Hidden gems would be, well, not so hidden, Monster, obviously Frankenstein and Monster Squad, and of course, mm-hmm. the creepy guy in Ty West's House of the Devil. Yes. <laughs> Love that. He's an FX the same year. Mm. Indeed. Which, um, not entirely similar, although Brian Dennehy, so you had, right. <laughs> you had the crossover there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Robocop sure. 2. Yeah, Robocop 2. He's actually a relatively friendly Ooh. cop in Damages. That's where we're slowly plowing through that one. That's where I've been seeing him recently. And then I saw him on a little stint as uh, the stew maker in um, uh, the blacklist. That was a nice little, that was a nice, that was a nice little surprise. Very, very playing very much to his creepiness. uh, Being able to pull that off. He plays every other character. That's not David Thewlis or Jennifer Jason Lee and um, Annalisa. Right, 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 right. Because he and Charlie, Charlie Coffin seems to like, I, I get Tom Noonan. Like, he seems like he knows, <laughs> like he's in Synecdoche also, right? So it's like, I, this, I know what I can do with this guy. <laughs> What's great about, uh, if you look at old photos of, of Manhunter, there's shots, uh, you know, they talk, you know, very candidly about, you know, they had, they had, they had, had the tattoo and they had shot all that stuff. And then they felt to trivialize the character and all that stuff. But there's sh- scenes where he has his hand, where he has the tattoo and he has his hands up. So my thought is, that you owe me all thing that he did that scene shirtless with that tattoo on. So it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting to, to, to sort of see that you don't ever see that footage, but you have seen stills from that um, with Noonan with the, with the tattoo. Pretty incredible too. We don't get to even see his character at all until like the first hour of the movie's already passed. Yeah. yeah. And it's we're right at, when, someone, hour, Mark. Right when someone we're familiar with finally sees him and that's brilliant. Like it's like, Oh, okay now he's here it's you know it's so different too now how we see a serial killer versus how we'd see him in like a movie from to like more modern where there's no elaborate outfit he has he's just wearing like weird clothes and he's got a stocking on his head he's not he doesn't have like a uniform he doesn't have the thing that's gonna like franchise him out as far as like that's that's him that's the guy that's the that's how he dresses it's just like he's just hanging around and like his you know almost his pjs here walking around lounging around the house So it's like as stylish as this is, it's still about humans. <laughs> that's the that's well, the thing. And the thing is great is he's not playing it big either. He's uh-huh. not like oh he's he's very matter of fact. Ray Fiennes plays it big. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how all of those big aspects that you would think of the Tooth Fairy, they're all 
trimmed down here for for Noonan's performance and it works to that. And then interesting, all of those bits that Michael Mann was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. They put all of those back in Red Dragon. They put the tattoo in, they put him eating the painting, all of the mm-hmm. stuff that he felt would bring, you know, would would diminish some of Noonan's power. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they put all that in in Red Dragon. And when, I, oh, it's in the novel, we have to do it. So I, I was like, uh, you don't have to do anything, but it's fine. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mention it, but I, I cause I read style. I didn't, I, I've read this book too. It's been a minute though. Brandon, do, do you rec- like, is the tooth fairy, is he described as like, like imposing and tall? Like, is that the thing? Yeah. Or? He's, and he's supposed to be like, uh, and he was like, fit. rather like, yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be fit, like rather like handsome, except for the, the, the hair cleft. lips. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he's just, conscious about stuff but he um not sure about imposing i think maybe he is but uh they relatively like they're probably you know ray fines richard armitage probably close but i just noonan's i it's creepy like i because he's he's you know he's he's tom noonan but yeah he's tom he's like doug jones he's like they're like these big gangly guys (laughs) that are like Except Doug Jones is like the sweetest guy on earth. This <laughs> is Tom Newton. <laughs> and Tom, Tom Newton's just got this like creepily calm voice that's uh-huh. just unsettling, even if he's playing a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he looks like a human praying mantis. Like, I mean, he's like, <laughs> he'll, he'll lure you in. Right. <laughs> like, right. He'll cut your head off in a stroke of it. And then apparently, you know, he didn't want to be around anybody. Uh, till they had to shoot stuff and like William Pearson was like what's up with this guy and then he realized they got the set that he was intimidated by him um, William Peterson famously not method either right <laughs> <laughs> this asshole can't be on set with me <laughs> god it really is such a different lang holy mackerel wow here we go Rolling, rolling, rolling. Jason, are you behind us a bit? Because we're at, like he's coming down the. the, he the that, he's he coming in the parking scene. lot now. He had a scene in front of that. Gotcha. Yeah, you know I, they've added two two of the scenes from the director's cut in the mm-hmm. in, and it was just supposed to be the theatrical cut. So yeah, yeah, we, we, we just we I'll just push saw it forward. Him, yeah, we okay, just saw him come down on fire. Now Dennis Farina's like, "What the okay. fuck just happened?" <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. He messed <laughs> up. Yes. I love throwing the ICU is like. I don't think he's gonna make it. <laughs> his, <guy. laughs> his entire his entire body was on fire. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Does look good. Yeah. Somebody get a medic. <laughs> so they're saying beyond third degree burns. You believe that? I will say this: the Freddie Lowndes. I like what they do with um, Freddie Lowndes in um, in Hannibal in the series. Oh yeah. Because uh, they, well, they, for one thing, it's a woman, but they mm. they have a neat way of handling like the kind you know, her being this kind of you know want to get that story type of reporter, yet being someone that Will can rely on in a different sort of way compared to mm-hmm. you know his compared to Jack Crawford, right? Well, it's a heavily male book, and you uh, know, and so trying to get it you know well rounded for television, not be a a guy fest, they had to. And I mean, been some that whole show, which I'm sure we'll reference as we keep going through this, but that <laughs> whole show has a lot of things on its mind as far as how to take it down various mm-hmm. rabbit holes. Um, and- well, it's a long time. The thing I, I like about it is, you know, it's it, Fuller. It's a long time book had been adapted twice. So he's not afraid to take some liberties with things. And it's kind of fun to see not just what you expect and different twists and turns and different take on it. 
And then, of course, Clarice is coming out. I just saw a trailer. Yeah. That, so I was like, wow, we're really. Yeah. It's on CBS. On where, where does yeah. Clarice stuff fall in the timeline of things? Yeah. A year after it's Silence. After Silence. And they yeah. cannot reference Hannibal at all. They're not allowed to. Yep. Wow. They have shot collars. Yeah. They can influence <laughs> Oh, that sounds like. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and they can only use the song Alex Chilton, but they cannot reference Dr. Chilton. Right. <laughs> So what do you think of? It's a of, stupid uh, joke. <laughs> What's on your mind, Clarice? Oh, Hannibal Burris. <laughs> Hannibal. <laughs> From the future. That would be cool. <laughs> Hannibal uh, Hannibal King. You know that the Ron Perlman's character in Pacific Rim. I just that's, that's, I got a spinoff. I don't know. It doesn't get <laughs> It, what, so it's a year after Silence, but is it? This is too much clarity talk. But is it like set in modern time, or is it? No, set- I think it's a period piece, nineteen ninety-three-ish. Oh, the old days. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. <laughs> nineteen ninety-three. Ancient times. <laughs> She'll come home to like a son who's playing Sega Genesis or something. Yes. You, you bums, don't you know everything is set in the eighties? Oh. <laughs> it's striking while the while Stranger Things is off air. It's like, yeah, let's get a nineties show in here, guys. <sighs> Well, Will Graham's son is like one foot away from being William Zabka and a bully in a movie somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So like this, for like a movie series with, oh, we got five movies. Is there really like really two real good ones or... I mean, yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, like, I would agree with that statement. I I, lo- I, lo- I don't know everybody's thoughts of the show. I love the television show. I was very big I'm, fan of that. I'm a huge fan of the show. Um, I, 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 whether I it comes back or not, don't care. It was brilliant. Uh, Agreed. It ran its course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I, I sit there, I'm like all these movies, and I'm like, yeah, the, there's only two clear, <laughs> like. And there's, there's two well, there's there's two clear terrible ones. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> there are, but there there is stuff I do like in Hannibal. While it's not good, there I think there's some aspects I like. But the I mean, show that, actually salvaged stuff that was done yes, from the yeah. bad movies, which was interesting. Well, I mean, it takes the you know the Italy stuff works in Hannibal. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that's, that's well, we'll get there. But that's the story. Solid. That's there. There's a precedent set with his novels that he was starting, and he then they have to put Clarice in the next one and you know, outside things from the film world influence his writing, which is not how it should Yeah, be. that's the, the problem with Hannibal is that mm-hmm. the book's not very good to begin with, so it's... Yeah. The, and, the book and, is almost in willfully, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of willfully critical of the fans that turned Hannibal Lecter into an, a pop culture anti-hero. Right. And, the, and sort then of the, a satirical right. giving the fans what they want kind of thing. Yeah, but then the movie yeah. is like, Overqualified, yeah. where yeah, exactly. it's like it doesn't so it very so, seriously. Yeah, it takes it's it seriously, like, and then you're like, we'll put satire, but we'll like we'll put Ridley Scott and what Steve yeah. Zalian's writing it. We'll give you Julianne Moore and obviously Hopkins and Gary Old. It's like Ray Liotta. Yeah, let's throw mm. everything we got at this. Yeah, and I mean they, you know, box office wise, they got the effect they oh, wanted. Yeah, I mean, like, three fifty. Yeah, you know, it's the biggest grossing serial killer movie of all time. By default. I mean, it was a pop culture really? like referential staple for like a couple it, years. People it, it, were, I mean, seven, parodying it. it and, uh, it made three fifty three. I know seven made like three twenty seven, and there's something else that made like almost. I I wrote about it months ago, but anyway, if you count it as a serial killer movie, which is debatable, since 
He's not fiber blue. one. <laughs> Where's <laughs> colon blue? Product placement. Yeah. Guess anyway, back, back, back to this. Movie. Movie. Chocula. We'll, Count Chocula. We'll have plenty uh, to talk brought about. To, we'll brought to, to you about by him. Carnation. <laughs> I love. I love. I love that they're talking about really dark. He's, first of all, he's trying to explain it to his his son, and so yeah. he's explaining all of this really dark material to his son. In a, in a in a grocery store, so yeah. it's, it's uh, what could be a creepier and other. He's awesome got no than that. filter. He's, this is, yeah. he's into this the is, case. Yeah. This yeah. Is, this is what I picture Jason doing when he has to tell his son why John Carpenter doesn't make movies anymore. He's just in a grocery <laughs> store. He's saying, "Son, I mean, Will, let me tell you, the studios—they're just—they're not making money with him." He's kind of cranky. He, he likes things a certain way, and it's just the studio system evolved. And he just like, yeah, we're not going to get another Big Trouble Little China. I don't know what to tell you. There was the sad thing was that there was rumors for what because again, my other son is named after Kurt Russell's character in Big Trouble Little China. He is Jack Burton Coleman, and there was talk at some, at a certain point that The Rock was like, "I love that movie. I want to redo it. Yeah, I want to be Jack Burton." And I was like, "Whoa, I don't know, man. I named my kid after Kurt Russell, but that's cool." that's cool so it never happened yet so we'll see fortunately the rock keeps stacking stuff on his plate so i don't yeah. well, yeah as aaron and brandon can tell you escape from new york is like one of my all-time favorites the way manhunter issues i didn't rename my children snake yes. plissken yeah. but i mean i really do enjoy it. you're just you're just subconsciously planting seeds for people to start calling him snake right i don't i don't agree with you poking his eye out but hey <laughs> <laughs> or constantly playing Isaac Hayes whenever he walks into. Yeah. A <laughs> I started. I started the big tattoo on his stomach too. I figured you do it a little at a time. It won't be as painful. Nice. <laughs> Will, Will, Gra- Will Graham is a Folgers man. Yeah. This is a long scene in this grocery store. We're still in the grocery oh. store. <laughs> it's 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 a have your cake and eat it too. It's an excellent character scene, uh-huh. but it also offers. I wouldn't say essential exposition. But it's stuff that I imagine certain viewers are going to be curious about, and it deals that past tense exposition in a way that is engrossing because, as you said, he's talking to his very young son. And they didn't have plastic shields at the counter, and, <laughs> and that's the thing. We we're, the, we're the, the direct, Jason. I'm surprised you didn't point this out. The director's cut right before mm. we leave the, the grocery store. A crazy Karen walks up with, without a mask and says, "I'm in front of you. <laughs> I need to get out of here." Yeah, and then they get eaten one. by mist monsters. And then Bruce Willis says, leave her alone. <laughs> That's great. Freedom. Um, <laughs> um, it is. It, I mean, we do. You're, you're not wrong, Jason. We do get like a ton of, I mean, what the, the, ed, like the, the construction of this movie is like neat to be as far. We've talked about mm-hmm. this already. We're like, you have, you're so focused on Will. We've got a hint of tooth, of tooth fairy. And the movie, like in terms of like pacing, it's going to kick into gear pretty quickly at, in a few minutes here once Will's mm-hmm. basically like settled everything down as far as like, all right, family's safe. Then the music kicks in and it's like, now it's it's like, what does he say? It's just you and me now, sport, right? And it's just like, <laughs> boom. Now it's just like cat and mouse game. We're going to do this thing. And there's so much, like even in the this, this, this scene between the two of them, there's just, there's, there's so much said and unsaid that it's enough. Like you get it. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's right there. So their scenes together are really good. So. Which is, because Brandon, you said like they introduce him earlier in the novel. Yep, yep. They start doing some of the photo lab stuff. Yeah, and which some is, other surrounding people. Which you think would be a good juxtaposition as far as you have Kim Grace and William Peterson here, and then you have Joan Allen and Tom Noonan like doing their thing. You think you could balance a, a different film would? I mean, Red Dragon does that. You would balance mm-hmm. these two different characters, right? As far as like you know, this guy on one side of the law, this guy you know, 
fucking nuts. Um, like in seeing the, how those relationships play out differently and whatnot. But this movie's like, no, we'll just hold all that. <laughs> we'll, yeah, well, we'll keep I that mean, at bay. The book, the book says, you know, they build up this, this murder, whatever he's a mystery. And it's like, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And they decide, we're going to lightly show you that he's the guy working behind the counter at the store you go to. And he takes your photos and videos, makes copies. And it's real weird. And then man says, how about I introduce him in a moment where he is terrifying as we've been building him up to, or something like that. So that's where he decides to, when Freddie Lowndes gets the, the blinds pulled off, that's blindfold pulled off. That's when we get the blindfold pulled off. And, and part like, of that's casting too. It's like, you have Tom Newton. You can't you can't really be subtle with his presence. You know? I mean, you can. There's a way to shoot that to be like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that decision's made. I, I don't know if that decision was made in the editing room with this movie because they shot some stuff, but like, I feel like it's in the script for this one. But you never know. I mean, movies can change drastically with editing. And by the way, when 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 music and visuals can send a chill up your spine, to me, that makes for a great movie. So the, oh, yeah. the, the bits where he's looking out the window and you have that score just slowly coming up. It's oh, it's tasty, man. Yeah, this yeah, this stuff's earlier in the book. This is a very blonde movie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> this is blonde central. Look how tall he like he just stood up and he's like four feet taller now. <laughs> <laughs> thrilling climax when he's beheaded by a ceiling fan. <laughs> <laughs> he's almost hitting his head on the... Ow, 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 ow. I have those exact same sunglasses in Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing the same shirt. Yeah. That's his look. <laughs> like, is that even a design or is that just like the Clorox got in the wrong spots on my shirt? <laughs> Little of both, yeah. The eighties. I mean, I guess it's not about this, but I mean, in terms of like how we see serial killers depicted, it is neat to think of the specificity of like their little hobbies they do or whatnot. Where like this guy, you know, he does photo work, like he develops. He and James Gum, he has the moths, he has the insects and things. Like it's it's neat to. I mean, it, without the films, like having much to say about this stuff i mean i guess that the metamorphosis thing is like a metaphor for silence Sil of the lands but it's just it's neat to like what like have this stuff layered in there but you're not really getting it's not trying to like overload you with like this is how a serial killer functions it's just like no these are just like the weird stuff that they do like here's here's how we fill out their lives as opposed to something more generic where you know there's a giant motive and a speech and everything is like why i'm doing all this stuff or something like, and this isn't a criticism, but you know, the cell where Vincent D'Onofrio's character is mm. acting in a very movie kind of way. Mm. Uh, that movie is still fascinating. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. you kind of get a duality, though. Like a lot yeah. of that over the topness is because yeah. you're in a virtual world, so he's creating yeah. all of these grandiose pieces. But uh, you almost wonder, like, what would he was he like, sort of outside of that? So. Oh, interesting. Not well, I think is the answer. No. To that question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um. Is young Joan Allen too? Yep. Yeah. Is this one of her first things? She was doing a theater with William Peterson. Yeah, yeah. they were both in, in Steppenwolf. Yeah. <laughs> All these Chicago people, or Illinois people. I mean, 
right, Brandon? Yeah, it's yeah. like a it's like a maybe fourth movie. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Jim. What'd you I'm say? I'm saying this is like a third. I'm saying this is like a third or fourth movie. Yeah, very early for her. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. A hidden gem. Uh, if anybody remembers it, The Contender. Great work. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. What's uh, the one with her and Costner? Oh, upside of anger. anger, upside of anger. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a good one. Saying for me, a guy that does not like Costner. That's where he's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I could just be a backseat supporting character <laughs> actor. Yeah, that, I, I prefer that. That's good. Well, then you might enjoy uh, let him let him go because he's absolutely second fiddle to Diane Lane in that one. Oh well, when I you know when it streams somewhere yeah. i'll be like oh i'll put this on in the background i'm working <laughs> <laughs> you got me <laughs> i'm in and she of course uh, plays of the other hannibal in uh, nixon right she's pat nixon yes <laughs> she have a mad mickelson uh, role yet or is she a guest star in the hobbit with richard armitage or something <laughs> Have Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins ever worked together? I'd be shocked if they have. It feels like they have, right? Like, mind. Like, could he have narrated something he was in? Like, one of the other. (laughs) Surprised it didn't happen in Transformers, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're probably this close to that actually being a thing. (laughs) Like, Brian Cox just signed up for a general for a day and he's like, nah, I can't do it. And Anthony Hopkins is pissed off. Let's see. I'm gonna, Have they though? I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, is I'm, he in, like, I'm, I'm going. I'm is he going. one? one of Honestly, the, that's exactly the kind of thing Michael Bay would do, just for his own. Right. Movie. Is he in one of the 14 cuts of Alexander? <laughs> like a- Anthony Hopkins is there because he's like blind and narrating, and like in the present time or something, or not the present, but like in a time after Alexander. It's a weird movie. <laughs> I saw it once. Didn't care for it. Never revisited it. They were in Red Two together. Oh my God! Oh, there you go. <laughs> of course, there you go. Oh, the red, the red. Of course, they the red were. connection. <laughs> we had to. Ask. At least they're at least in that together. Maybe they were in. Nice, else. Mendelssohn. You called it, man. Uh, <laughs> that's like Pacino and De Niro's only movie together was Righteous Kill. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> <laughs> He's in both. He's in both threads, Brian. Okay. This tiger seems so weird. It feels like something man would have put in it, but it's in the book. Yeah, it it, it feels just a stylized moment. And but the question would, but the question would be, if it was made today, would you have that tiger be CGI? Because I mean, they had an actual tiger there. Yeah. Honestly, it depends on who's directing it. Yeah, I guess well, so. They probably tranquilized uh, it. To, oh, they did. They, they, yeah, so. Yeah. Because it's getting saying, its tooth work done. Probably. They didn't and that guy, the guy who's there, the he's, Joan he's Allen the actual, is still alive. Yeah, the guy who's there, he's the actual, like, like yeah. trainer guy, so. Tiger Wrangler. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> A young Joe Exotic makes his film debut. <laughs> if anything i feel like the tiger scene in the book was something that like probably was one of the me- major factors in attracting man to this movie it's like i get to mm. shoot a scene in a, bl- a white room with a tiger count me in <laughs> the vision the angles the visuals the coloring i can use in that scene oh my god that's man city right here that's how he calls his movies man city <laughs> meanwhile another like lonely in the u.s government <laughs> found in evidence closet 
There's a, like kid's a statue toy in the background. There. Statue of Jack Webb somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant's right behind the hall. Of I was going to exactly. say the Indiana yeah. Jones grave is right there. <laughs> it looks like he's one of the top men. <laughs> it's a pile of microfiche that says JFK on it. <laughs> it labeled Maryland, did it? <laughs> huh. <Back> shot. <laughs> That's a fun poster. <laughs> People were wild in the 80s. <laughs> oh, now here's a Michael Mann motif, glass block. Yeah. I am fascinated by glass block as like a design right. choice. Like that's so neat to me. <laughs> like, it's and glass so- block does show up in Band of the Head. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's oh, glass pattern here. And every episode of Miami Vice, <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> there was glass block, and then there was the little thing where it was like a half wall and then like a stair rail. Like, what the hell is that? F- like, why? <laughs> like, just block people, take up room. Like, people were into the glass block. I like glass block. I, 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 I get glass block, but the little half with the. Like other than like being nostalgic for him, like what what was the point of it? I forgot <laughs> watching this, just watching them watch a video. I'm like, oh yeah, she's blind, so he just yeah. see the yeah. nonsense. That's like I was just thinking about this date that they're on, and I'm like, wait a minute, oh yeah, that's right, she can't see anything. <laughs> and it's kind of fascinating, you know, in retrospect, you know, thinking about how this, how the, how the end scene was sort of taken out. That Patricia Carbono, who of course was in those scenes, you know, and obviously went out to had done Desert Heart and was famous for that and stuff, but that she was in those scenes and then didn't actually get to appear in the movie in person. Like it was all via this mm-hmm. video stuff, which is really creepy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially for being an eighties movie, the, the atmosphere here, it doesn't require like smoke or yeah. like darkness nope. or what, I mean, it, you know, it's at night or whatever, but I mean, you're generally being presented him as he is like in, you know, even in that Freddie scene, mm-hmm. it's creepy, but it's not, you know, like Demi's Demi's movie, you know, that has a whole different, you know, mm-hmm as good as it is the buffalo bill stuff is like the worst it's as far as, like, <laughs> the environment you're well, in it's, like well, it's, it's an opera i've always felt you know it's a fairy tale opera mm-hmm. this is much more of a clinical procedural yeah um which you get from man who can use yeah. stark visualization it's a michael mann movie absolutely. production design <laughs> um or minimalistic production design And we're obviously we're talking, so we can't like hear just the great music that's coming in. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is this is uh, this is um, the Shriekback, right? Um, uh, what's it called? Cole Cole Caniff, I think it's called. It's oh, it's really good. And again, goes through the whole scene all up until um, they're on the dock on the on the last part of the scene. watching this alien get kissed right now <laughs> i'm cured i'll never kill again he's playing it he's, he's playing it the same as like jeff bridges would in starman it's yeah. <laughs> interesting reference it's interesting how it's interesting how he michael mann chose specific music and stuff for different scenes and stuff like that but here it has kind of an emotional content it's interesting how in my in miami vice sometimes it's just used for for you know really good visuals or it's you know smugglers blues like it was used for an episode they called it smugglers blues or you know what i mean so it's it's um and you remember certain moments with certain 
uh, with certain songs. Um, but here, I, it just there's such a, a range of emotion that go, that adds to the to the movie with each of the song selections. It's a great soundtrack. It was a hard soundtrack to find um, for a long while there, because um, obviously the the LP came out. Obviously, <laughs> you know, back in the day, but to get in on any kind of you know digital format or CD or anything at the time was like impossible. And then it started to show up every once in a while because I looked for it for years. Um, it started to show up at little like um, uh, little comic cons or fan fests and stuff, you know, where somebody would bootleg it and stuff. And then eventually they came out with a, with a good digital version of it, but yeah. And then little pieces would be on it and some wouldn't be on it. And there's, it's just great music, all of it. So this movie bombs, as we talked about, mm-hmm. right. Um, and then, I mean, it's not another film until Mohicans in 92. What's right. he doing? What crime story, right? He's has crime yeah, story. Yes. For two years. Yes. And then when does he, does he, when does he do um, uh, LA Takedown? Is it LA Takedown? Yes. Uh, 89-ish. Is it 89-ish? Yeah. And that was, of course, that was a preheat, which, yep. is, yeah. which is fascinating, which a lot of people maybe don't know, but you can, you can see scenes of it. And it's so weird seeing oh, yeah, but other people do the Pacino and De Niro scene. You're like, what? I mean, I, I've, I've watched it. Yeah, it's um, not just other people. It's actors that are not very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Period. <laughs> end of sentence. <laughs> right. Um, well, the guy who's playing is it Macaulay? I think the guy who's playing Macaulay. I think that's the guy who was uh, the serial killer in the William Friedkin film Rampage, if I'm not mistaken. So. Um, yes, you're right. Yeah, but it, it was a shock to me when I first watched it how similar it was. I was like, oh, yeah. you really did remake this movie. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're, you know, heat is slightly superior. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out well. Yeah, it worked better. out okay. But so, okay, so he does Crime Story and he does LA Takedown as like a big TV movie thing. And then, yeah, then he gets, then like his 90s, it's at least a little more consistent, right? He yeah. gets Mohicans, which is like a, a decent hit, right? Can, uh, yeah, then, uh, a solid little hit. It wasn't mega movie but it, heat is similar right because it's not a huge if anything no, it's kind of underperforms it's, it's kind of weird in that when the movie came out the reviews were generally positive but they weren't superlative and it was a december right. release right it yeah. came out in december uh, and it was it very leggy it opened to like seven million and change it legged out to around 60 marketing was um, big for heat i remember yeah well yeah because you got pacino um, and de niro in the same movie and it, and uh, alone. Kilmer, 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 right off Kilmer, batman yeah, yeah. Kilmer right yeah. off batman and like casino just came out in like what october yeah. or november, like november that came out right. so like you, you like um, everybody's on a win streak right here but when always you know and, and someone who was you know i was 15 when he came out it was sort of interesting watching it is it steam grow from hey this is a solid crime movie to one of the greatest movies of all time um well, it just it, like it has this like ultimate man appeal as oh, far absolutely. as like it's everything a Michael Mann movie is, but it's yeah. also like an epic because it's almost three hours. Yeah, so, and you have <laughs> and you have and there were and, you know and everybody stars in it. We're in that movie, like it's crazy. Like, yeah. it's, like it's, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the diner scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I recognize Jim there. I, I'm, yeah, I'm deleted... the one making the food. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm one of Dennis Haysbert's kids that's in a deleted scene you don't see. You know? <laughs> I duck for cover in the street. I got <laughs> shot by a grocery cart. It's very <laughs> like, hey, what's going on? Oh Peter gave Tom Sizemore a bad look and uh, got punched in the face for it. That's it. And then, then they started filming the movie. <laughs> so like 
so heat's like yeah it, it does what it does but it like yeah it's not this like runaway train success no. it's just more like well they, yeah they did it they made a huge movie together and like it was well liked and then then you get the insider that's like just yeah, like yeah. it's mo- like it's two prestige things in a row, and then Collateral becomes prestige by default because Jamie Foxx is just having a moment that year. But like, it's, it's a huge hit, relatively it, speaking. Yeah, but so you get, but before that, you get the Insider, which is like, which is such a crazy. Like, think of that. Think of think of Disney being like that now. It's like, yeah, I guess we should give Michael Mann like seventy million dollars to to make a a three hour nothing but dialogue uh, journalist piece <laughs> starring Russell Crowe right. and, and Al Pacino. Even back then, A, it flopped, obviously. And B, even back then, people were talking about it as the kind of movie that nobody makes anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been having that conversation for a long time. And without you know, getting on my soapbox, the kind of movie that qualifies as they don't make this anymore has gotten long, a list has gotten longer and longer. Indeed. Um, We're back to Lester. this. Is the first time we've seen Lecter for yeah. Since... He's got some comfy socks on. Oh yeah, yeah. looks like he's wearing two socks. The, the the my my favorite thing about about this uh, scene, obviously, besides the acting, I was going to say is the is the the background uh, when Peterson talks about how there's an elevator in the building in the background that goes into a specific point and it was like all timed out that Michael Mann was yeah. that detailed that, that that's like Ridley Scott Blade Runner detail yeah. like yeah. it's like I'm like wow that's geez it's that yeah I because I I, I I I listened to that commentary it, it's right. it is really fascinating to think of him like yeah. having to plan something like that out like, yeah that's how deep the theme the thematic goes of the visual it's not just like he's in white and he's in black you have literal lights coming up behind them that are t- in another building that you have to tie that's that's crazy for this movie it's not you know it's not heat it's not a giant epic of a huge amount of money to work with it's this movie which is fairly yeah. mod- modestly budgeted. Imagine that phone call of Dina De Laurentiis. What you want to do? What? <laughs> I need. I need you to get permissions for the the building for five blocks down the skyscraper over there. I need you to get the permissions there for us to use the elevator for three hours. <laughs> all, all right. <laughs> let me see. Let me make some. Let me make some calls. <laughs> let me see the dailies of that elevator. You really want? Can I see it? You see? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Oh, this, yeah, this that's creepy. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what's interesting is because um, one of the things that I felt like in this mo- in this movie, obviously, they didn't go too far, and I I always kind of liked that was that Will Graham's putting himself in the shoes of the killer in the sense of seeing and 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 whatever, but he's not doing the actions. And I, of course, in in the TV show, Hugh Dancy actually does the actions. I'm curious what 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 your thoughts are on that because I kind of like the restrained version myself. Like mm-hmm. um, the other one felt a little like like Noonan having the, the the thing, like going, okay, we're gonna we're gonna make this shocking and and add something else to it. And I I like I kind of like the restrained version. I mean, if if you're making a TV show version in the '80s, then yeah, right. you can use restraint. I think in the two two thousands, twenty tens when you're making a TV show version of Hannibal and you've seen multiple Hannibal movies, let alone all the serial killer dramas and very, and CSI and all these shows, you need to do something that's going to stand out. And that show's tone is so distinct. Yeah. Arch. And you have so much like the, the, uh, what's the word, the, 
that double G word that I never met. Like just the the use of like gore. Grand, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that yeah. one. Whatever. The, <laughs> that one. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yes. <laughs> when you have those visuals that like in play so heavily. Yeah. On the on the Hannibal side of things, as far as the like the the the, um, the very intense close-ups on the food and people <laughs> and parts and things, you need to you know you can't just let Hugh Dancy sit there and like, you know, calmly figure something out without like making that uh, a larger visual expression as well. Now that's not to say that one is better than the other, but I think for the sake of that show, it makes sense for me to like get an inside view of what Will Graham's going through in the same way that I'm getting this extreme gortacular version of what Hannibal and <laughs> the various killers they encounter are going through. Um, and also for the TV show, especially the pilot, it works as very efficient uh, visual exposition. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you pretty much know. Okay, that's what Will is dealing with. Okay, let's move on. I like this, like Will, like like this is what he's seeing. Like they're yeah. sort of like entangled with one another when actually he's just you know dropping her off or whatever. Um, I did like the shot in the car where he's got the shadow over him, like yeah. he, when he had the mask on earlier. We don't see enough of a man doing surreal. Like, I mean, (laughs) there's this and the keep basically, right? Like I'm trying to like, he doesn't do anything else. That's that, that borders on that kind of realm. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't make movies anymore because nobody wants to give him money to make the things that he wants to do. So maybe if he, maybe pitches something's like, yeah, you know, superheroes or something. Why not? But he still makes like very much his movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fuck it. I'll do the shadow. <laughs> I love how cold that kill is. It's yeah, just it's no really noise, just, yeah. Just no talk. Matter just, of fact. You know, it's funny. This this song right here also appear <laughs> also appears in the movie Abraxas, which is the Jesse Ventura Terminator knockoff movie. Wow, really, that is re- that is really no. obscure. Yeah, we go. Go. I, I, expect, I expect that much out of you, Brandon. <laughs> it's also got. Um, Schwarzenegger's buddy Sven Olthorsen. Sven he's, he, he's like the T one thousand type guy that Jesse Ventura's, uh, or he's like the T eight hundred guy that Jesse Ventura's, um, uh, whatever. Um, Kyle Reese has gone back in time to fighting against. Yeah, yeah I, have it on, I have it on VHS actually behind me. Nice. And the Prime Movers who did that song "Strong as I Am," of course, they're named after the Twilight Zone episode that starred Buddy Epson. Oh. <laughs> yes. I feel like as specific as his films are and how moody the music can be or what have you, he does get like big songs to just play on the soundtrack for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Like that's fun. <laughs> yeah. I will, I will say with this movie, it definitely qualifies in those. He's not on here, but Yancey, he's pointed out to Aaron. I like to talk about, you know, missing when like movies really cared about every shot where you could make a conversation. You cared about what a conversation looked like. Mm-hmm. And yes. like, this is one of those movies where it's like everything matters. Like ever, and it's not in a, it's not in a heavy-handed kind of way. It's just like let's make this interesting if we're gonna, you know. Well, this is a conversation-driven picture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's very little action. There's very, you know, especially comparatively speaking, there's very little violence. Mm -hmm. What violence there is is either obtuse or mostly off-screen. Um, which is another way, you know, to get back to what I think Aaron was asking about, you know, how much control Michael Mann had over this picture. I would have to argue. The fact that it's so restrained implies to me that he had quite a bit of control. Because mm-hmm. I imagine a more, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote studio slash producer influenced movie would have more on screen action and on screen violence. Right. Um, more right. genre. Good point. 
Well, it's, it's it's neat to think of that when you know in terms of this being if you want to call this a forebearer to other films that come since obviously silence of the lambs but then you look at like seven which again we talked yeah. about recently that's a movie where again there's not technically a lot of action in that movie it's just so heavily stylized yes. everything has some kind of purpose and it, it's yeah. not even that grisly you see a yeah. after, after yeah. stuff but in terms of like yeah. the way it's the, the aftermath it's, yeah it's it's, yeah. it's stage uh, and blocked in a way that it's feels much gorier than it actually is but right. you have but then there's and much like silence yeah. you have movie stars at the center yes. of this thing that, right you, know, you have brad pitt and morgan freeman guiding you through this you know oh. nightmare town that but you're going the, through those the stylized those are the ones we of these we remember like copycat doesn't get as remembered just cause doesn't get as mm. remembered like that it's those heavily styled because they're affected Suspect with their zero. visual language yeah <laughs> wow Taking lives, taking lives. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Even the even the Morgan Freeman, the you know, kiss the girls, and along came a yeah. spider. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. spider. It had a sequel, but you know who talks about? No, no one crosses Alex Cross because no one wants to cross Alex Cross. <laughs> <laughs> Those films are fun. I, I'm curious to get your points of view on two very distinctive differences between this movie and Red Dragon, both the movie and the book. Not only the tattoo but also him going to the Brooklyn Museum and eating the painting, which yeah. is in the book and is yep. in Red Dragon, but is not in Manhunter. Just curious about your thoughts on that. Glance, I would argue, it was a kind of surreal, absurdist touch that perhaps was cut out to make, you know, because perhaps audiences wouldn't accept it at face value. Again, you know, by, by 1986 standards, this film is pretty surreal and pretty not fantastical, but again, you don't have a lot of movies about people hunting serial killers. You know, I think it's possible that that was sort of a bridge too far back then. Yeah, it's neat to think of man trying to consider like, how far do I go with this? Because we just, you know, we've just seen a dream sequence for Will and then this kind of imaginative version in, from Tom Noonan's perspective about what's going on with the uh, with Joan Allen and the other character that he well, it's kind of like they're finally connecting on the wavelengths like will's like i'm onto this guy now and as they're both having these visions it seems like they link up and, and i i mean perhaps because of how much we're seeing of tom noon and how much we're getting will and and based on what we're seeing with these characters which is not just you know this stuff but the you know the the relationships they have i feel like if you're sudden if you're trying to draw you know because like you also deleted the uh what the the, the uh, grandmother stuff or whatever with with uh right. with dollar hide so it's like, like a whole yeah. lot of red dragon stuff deleted with him too exactly so a normal possibility I, yeah so i feel like it, you know the focus there is maybe not necessarily that's too weird it's just that he he has an idea of how to portray dollar hide as this guy that yeah you know ha- he has an agenda as far as murdering people but he also has this you know his personal life when he's in you know not so much red dragon mode with joan allen and he wants to emphasize like what, what it is to be this guy, this kind of outsider guy that suddenly found a kinship with somebody else who also has a, a disability, uh, so to speak. And so like taking time away from that to be like, hold on, Joan Allen, let me go eat a painting. It's like, I don't know if that's <laughs> going to fit in the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. It is also to the extent yeah. this movie is comparatively laser focused on Will Graham, uh-huh. you know, Pardon the ridiculous comparison, but it's like some of the late, you know, the middle Harry Potter movies that basically cut everything that isn't Harry um, as much as possible. Um, so with this, everything here is Will 
unless we you know really have to justify going away from those POV, which as you know, because we just you know there's almost nothing in this film that isn't from those POV, especially in the first hours. So it really is only in, in the finale that we actually get any time with the quote unquote tooth fairy. Yeah, and the dollar hide that we get is pretty much like the dollar hide that Will's going to meet. Like he's yes. not going to know of all these like ooh red dragon things that go on in his head. To be honest with you yes, know, with the dollar hide character. Um, yeah. So and man's not a guy that's you know trying to reward an audience for paying attention or you know he he doesn't need the he doesn't need Will to be in and like you know have this confrontation and then like we as the audience are watching like yeah and he did all this other stuff like there's no yeah man is focused on the story that he's telling not how to make an audience like feel a certain way because mm-hmm. they, they they know things already man can show you the stuff going on in will's head in the book he it's harder to show dollar hides and make it try not to make it too campy too over the top change the what this movie is that he's going for um, but it's a lot easier to show the crime scenes, to watch him work through them, to maybe throw a couple dialogues or have him talk to a tape recorder to himself to get those across. With Dollar Hides, he's going to be in a room by himself being like, I am the Red Dragon. This, it's almost complete. Or having a voiceover in his head, and that's going to really change what this movie is. What's the most crowd-pleasing man movie? <sighs> the and for those who watched that. it, The Insider. Really? I, mean, I would say I would say I would say I would be branded. I would say Heat as well. I think it was just really accessible with so many different characters. It's and long, it's, but yeah. It's, yeah, that's about the only knock I could give about it not being accessible. That's the one people. And even then, being not, that long, it felt it felt like there was pieces cut out. Like it was, you yeah. know, it was the 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 Dennis Haysburg character. I always felt like there was more with that character, but he was like, this movie's already too long. We need to edit it down. <laughs> but I always felt like if you put it, if you had a director's cut, it probably would be like four hours long. Yeah. We all welcome it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Collateral is really popular. Co- collateral is like where I'm thinking as far, because there's a, yeah, you think- have, you have a hero in Jamie Foxx's character, as far as you're what you're following this guy who's dealing with the hell of a night. And you have mm-hmm. Tom Cruise as, as you know playing the Terminator, wearing yeah. wearing, <laughs> wearing a wig that makes him look very much like De Niro, but that's just me. <clears throat> and rubbing shoulder to the transporter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I mean, like by the time the the end, the end of that movie, it's you know, it's more conventional compared to other man films, but there's still a satisfaction being like, oh, this guy that we do not want to see harm come to wins, right? Yeah, where heats. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Heat's not crowd pleasing, but Heat, you know, you have two characters that you ideally want to see succeed, right? So, and you're going to walk away feeling something um, that's, you know, a mix of tragedy and triumph because one of them's not going to get away and the other is. It's a. Oh, this moment answers the question how long is that Anagata Davida drum solo? Oh. So, there <laughs> the are. The song itself is 17 minutes now, by yes. itself. Given that I've seen Manhunter. After a certain thing I'm about to say, there are two reasons I know Indigata DeVita. One is this movie, and the other is the Simpsons episode where Bart <laughs> changes the hymn to Indigata DeVita. Yep. Oh, yes. That was the first time I ever heard that. Yep. <laughs> Reverend Lovejoy comes out and says, In the Garden of Eden by I, Ron Butterfly. And it, <laughs> this is like, it sounds for, like for rock me, and your know, role. It's a hilarious at, episode. At, yeah. the, at the age I was at, I have no knowledge of Iron Butterfly, I have no knowledge of Indigata DeVita. My dad did. And so like watching this, I just naturally found it hysterical just because of how ridiculous it was all. Well, and the like, organ player was like organ player. And it like goes on, right? It like it does. <laughs> yes. It doesn't. Oh, yeah. Sim- 
the idea of the, of a Simpsons episode that knows how to incorporate a fade, <laughs> a fade out and a fade in for comedic effect, where it's like you're implying that t- much time has passed, is so hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but my parents, having grown up in the '70s, you know, they, they said the reason that that song was so long was because people would get high and they wanted a song where they didn't have to change the LP, and so that <laughs> that song was 17 minutes long. Uh, this Whoa. is not for me, but I'm just saying that was their that was their rationale. They said this song is perfect. It's 17 minutes long i don't have to change the lp i don't have to flip sides. It, yeah i was gonna say it's also why i got played on college radios in the 60s and 70s <laughs> but uh yeah i mean the drum solo so long they're able to fly all the way to st louis <laughs> yeah. here's uh frankie Faison, by the way who's the yeah. reoccurring character in almost all of the hannibal movies except for there you go. Oh. i assume he's not in rising although i have not watched it yeah. long enough to remember right. i i I also love that all these people have like basic names, and then you get to Francis Dollar High. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Backs to the plane. Yeah, on yeah. The plane? No. yeah. That's how that's how it works. I mean, that you know, Bruce Willis was able to call Holly on the plane in Die Hard they, too. Yeah, they uh, put the landline on airplane mode. I was going to remark how they were looking up stuff in books before, but the remark got past me. You know, we're you know talking about this. All of the stuff we're watching is coming from just regular police work, which is like fascinating to yeah, like see. Right, yeah, and like not have you know, it's not some elaborate tell. It's just like we watched the videos a lot. And uh, we investigated the scenes, and we ran some traces and cross-checked some things, and now we know where our guy is. Like, it's so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's so, it's very much like, yeah, that's how that's how you that's how you do police came work. together, and we. So again, getting your perspective, guys, on on the this versus the book and the other Red Dragon movie uh-huh. in the in the book, of course, he sort of fakes his own death and then shows up at Will Graham's house. And that happens in the book yeah. and that happens in Red Dragon. But Michael Mann didn't take that here. So just wanted to get your take on on that and what you thought about that. It's why I'm like, it's it's weird that the director's cut, like I was, I was trying to say earlier, that it like mm-hmm. emphasizes so much of the familial relationship for Will because it's like doing that, you know, gives you a high level of investment. So obviously right. it should have some kind of payoff. And it doesn't really not, I mean, not in the, the same way as it would by having a whole standoff confrontation later on right. this one, just because, you know, once we get to like the hour 10 mark, that's it for like Kim Grease, pretty much. We're not seeing the family anymore. We're like, now Will's just in detective mode the whole time. Well, uh, so the, it, the, the film is all about Will hunting him and all the stuff about the dollar hide being interested in will is pretty much absent aside from the note to Lecter from this because he's more he is obsessed a bit with will and the boy becomes a duality thing uh but in the movie it's not present so it makes sense for will to go after uh with the details that he tells the story with it would make sense because dollar hide isn't going after will he's not worried about will um so it would make sense that will goes after him as far and as it stops here, yeah. as far as a story goes, like that's a it makes sense to have Dollar Hyde have become more of a personal threat to Will based off the arc that we're watching. Like I understand, yeah. I understand why you would make that decision and why a movie would make that. I like I don't I don't fault the Red Dragon movie for you know taking on those areas. Like yeah, I feel like if you're a you know a general audience member that's seeing a movie like this and the confrontation ends the way it plays around with the fake death and then it's like, Oh, he's actually still alive. It's like, I get that. I've seen that in other movies like that, which right, yeah. you know, it's, it, 
it, it, there's a lot there's a logic to that as far as what you generally expect from a movie like this to have this kind of final confrontation as opposed to what we're going to get here which is you know it's a confrontation but it's like you know he gets shot and that's it like that's, that's it, what it, it is all worth it when he sir lancelots it through the, the oh, window come on oh yeah it's no, the best no, shot ever come all on. worth it make, it's make, so good make, oh. make it slower that's what i say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no it is all worth that shot that is a, so, it's so amazing oh. Oh. That's what I was. The file was too big. That was going to be the background. It was a gif of that, but I couldn't. Oh. <laughs> because it's awesome. It is. With the, so the damn music playing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It hits the music right at the perfect part. And and so I imagine, like, I'm a, like a 12, 11 year old watching that for the first time. Like, well, this is a choice. Like, that's just like. Yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> and I, like, at that time, I know this song because of The Simpsons. So, I'm like, this we're we're on a train here. This is going somewhere. <laughs> now we get some fog. Yeah, yeah. This is the first fog we have in our eighties movie. Mm-hmm. Impressive, most impressive. <laughs> it's not overbearing. It's definitely no. Yeah, it's just like in a, you know in an era defined by smoke machine. It's like yeah, there's some fog outside here. <laughs> yeah. Like if this was Tony Scott or Ridley Scott's Manhunter, like you couldn't oh. walk two feet without seeing some fog. <laughs> Every time Will goes into a hotel room, be like, oh, get the fog out of my way. <laughs> this looks good. I haven't watched this in a while. This looks great as far as the transfer goes. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. This like steely look yeah. that it has right now. I, I really love here as he's going through, I really love how Peterson and the camera kind of like work together to make it, you know, this uh-huh. search. He's got some. Interesting movements. Yeah, you should probably move in on that. Now, I mean, as skilled as the Tooth Fairy seems to be in his sneak into the house and murder families routine, probably shouldn't have done this in front of an open window. Like, I mean, it was, you know, I got hid, <laughs> hidden somewhere else or had glass block installed. I mean, he's in the wilderness, but still, I mean. Seems like a guy that knows how to handle himself as far as covering up his tracks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the passion of the moment. In love with Pat Nixon. Uh, here it comes. Get ready. Here we go. Here we come. We're just waiting for him to shatter this glass. <laughs> yep. God, he defended himself. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> uh, he's he's carrying this through too with the whole saying it out loud <laughs> stop this stop it stop it go cool shot with the glass oh this shot's great here we Oh, so this little cut edit too, right there. Like took out some frames. Yeah, to, get to make it shoot his head up. Yeah. Here we go. Because it, it tricks you into thinking it's going to cut away and then back again, but it keeps going and bam. I hope Peterson did like like fourteen times. I was going to say I was going to say definitely like happy like happy accidents because 
if you listen to their stories, they talk about how like the special effects crew and everybody kind of left and they had to kind of do this stuff on the fly. So it's interesting, the cutting, because you're, you're thinking, oh, it's all great style choices, but a lot of it can also be stuff that they couldn't get. So they went, let's, let's edit this and make it look good kind of yeah, thing. It's, it's great. Yeah. Listen, that, that's, where, that's where a lot of great scenes that we love come from is just necessity. This stuff is like when he picks up that shotgun and again, just this matter of factness, like the way he uses slow motion is so fascinating mm-hmm. to me because it's not like peck and paw. It's his own no. like, it's almost like speed ramps, honestly. It's like, it's, it's what Zack Snyder is doing. Like, it's like he slows it down only to speed it up to increase that intensity. Yeah. It's wild. But you're watching it and like, you know, this is the 80s. So it's like you don't have, you know, certain techniques you can use now to make that seem cleaner. And it's not that it's, you know, it's not that it's not clean in a way that like looks good here, but it's like, it's very specific, like how we're watching this, how we're watching this guy act like this instinct driven animal now that he's, you know, being threatened. And cops out in the woods. Is that Anagata DeVita? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke him if you got him. <laughs> and again, we're watching like this mastermind serial killer, and he's wearing like, you know, some slacks and a like, blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> like just like it's it keeps going back and forth with the with the slow motion and everything. It's but in the way the way when Dollar Hyde falls to his death is very reminiscent kind of the motion of the woman getting up from bed in the opening scene. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, there's the wings. That's gonna leave a scar. Well, get into the ICU. <laughs> 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 I think he's going to pull through. Touch and go. Actually, I'm a completely coincidental, but he actually looks exactly like the uh, Spread Eagle uh, yeah, prison silent, guard that gets... Silence. Yeah. Char- oh, and Char- Charles Nance. Oh, yeah. yeah. That film's oh, more oh, highlighted. Charles Nance, Charles... Uh, Charles Napier. Napier, thank yes. you. Yes. Charles yes. Napier, yeah. We know our character actors on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name and that guy? <laughs> I remember him from Miami Blues, and he was like, uh, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. talking to Fred yeah. Ward, and he's like the Kerry Christian that died of a broken finger. And he's like, well, yeah. I guess he died of shock. He's <laughs> also, also the guy who drove the truck. Uh, was it Billy Bob in the uh, in the uh, Blues Brothers? Oh yeah, yeah. right. You're right. Had, yeah, had the cowboy band. Yeah, yeah. Rambo didn't like him. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but that, Man, that 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 line, you know, or the line of him saying. You know, I'm Will. I'm Will Graham. That that always struck me, and so I, I always love that name. And I think that's 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 where it always hits me when I when I when I hear I'm Will. I'm Will Graham. So love that name. Thursdays, right? And the sun's rising. Everything's okay now. Tonight on Rescue Squad. <laughs> Manhunter epilogue. And of course, there's there's a there's a, a a scene in the director's cut where he goes, where Will Graham goes mm-hmm. and visits the family that with Patricia Carbonaugh, the wife, um, that was going to be slaughtered by Dollarhead. The, the problem I have with the scene is I like the idea of the scene, but it yeah. never really conveys because Will just kind of goes and 
is confused why he's there at all too. Right. Which is fine. I get it for the character, but it just, it, as an audience member, it didn't provide me with anything. It didn't provide me with, it, the, 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 there just wasn't something there for me. Like I, I, I can do without the scene. Well, it's also a, a needless cliffhanger. Right. Um. Yeah, it's one of those, like, you know, where he's the monster really dead kind of thing. It's like, right. yeah. yeah. I think it also could work better knowing what the real ending was. You yeah. Know, you see that and you're like, oh, well, it, this is a fascinating. It's it's weird option. when movies, like, try to throw that in there to be, to, like, add a touch. Because it, it feels like, was well, that just, like, a producer's note or something? Or, like, mm. you, like is it trying to, like, you know, movies that, these cop throwers that aren't horrors where it's like, well, do we want to leave them like having more or something or like give the audience this weird question or should we just like leave them happy? The weird example I'm thinking of is like Face Off where it has that weird alternate ending where John Travolta looks in the mirror and he's I like- I hate that ending. But it's like, at what point does any of that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> like, <it's>, like, <laughs> I mean, there's for no, a number of reasons. One of which <laughs> is that he absolutely earns the happy ending. Yeah, and it's- <laughs> And, with with and, Joan Allen, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> where she's like, "Yeah, we'll adopt a kid. I don't care, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's a movie that absolutely needs a super duper silly mega happy ending because it's so melodramatic. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this one we've been in. You know, we've been immersed in so much like dread and mood for so yeah. much of the movie. Like even again, the beginning is just like Dennis Farina being like, "Look." I know you're okay out here, but there's a guy who's murdering families, so we're going to need... Like, the whole movie rests on this whole thing. So the idea that we're ending on a beach, it's like, yeah, good. (laughs) This is nice. The sun's out. So we started on a beach. Yeah, yeah, but going going back, coming out of the dark, going into the light. It looks less ominous here. (laughs) I mean, if we open, he's sitting down, looking away from the sun. Now he's standing up with his family looking toward it. So it's kind of... There you go. I was love the kid bring out a big mouth Billy Bass and just start having a sing along. <laughs> those rocks might maybe those rocks don't want to be in the water, kid. Well, he's growing, he's, he's going to grow up to be a bully in an eighties movie some point. So. Yeah, <laughs> just reminds me that. Wow, Joan Allen oh. credited third. Yeah. That's actually surprising. To Contracts, me, right? baby. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Either, that or, either that or deleted scenes that nobody knows about. Over Tom Noonan, like that was yeah. Wow. Thank you, Faison. And Lieutenant Chris Piss. Elliott as Zeller. <laughs> Crushed it. <laughs> well, that's a good mm. movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> what a freeze yeah. frame we got, too. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. This Take looks like a silence. And as I said, on the big screen, oh, man, you're just like, oh, wow. I think I, I, think I bought a picture frame with this in it. <laughs> 30 original hits by the original artists right <laughs> oh man yeah yeah this thing's just an experience like that's part of what's fun about it it's just to like sit and let it let it take you soak it in <laughs> and to use the point about the director's cut ending it kind of feels like what you know Michael Mann read the book and that's like he's three quarters of the way and he's like oh i know where this is going it doesn't go there so he kind of shoots his own thing to where he (laughs) thought the book should go and i mean that's the kind of thing we have to keep in mind that like it's not like you shoot this and you can see what it's going to be like you know you're shooting this in pieces you're shooting it all over the place you have an idea of what the script is there's a ton Mm -hmm. of other people also telling you ideas like you you have options yeah 
No, no, I'd say this in terms of the, this ending versus the book. Again, it's just another example of, I would argue, him streamlining the material. Yeah. And trying to avoid stuff that's even more over the top than what, again, comparatively in 1986, what is already there. Because, you know, a movie like this is already, you know, has one foot over the edge, so to speak. So I think that's why they excised all the stuff for the grandmother and eating yeah. the painting and just like you said to streamline the story, make it make more yeah. sense to a movie audience. Um, how long's Red Dragon? Is like two hours and change? Mm, yeah, yeah. It's about the same length as this, give or take. Interesting. Okay, we'll uh, we'll get there. I haven't watched Michael it. Mann also also said he was very candid about saying that he used like he had he it was Dennis Wayne Wallace, some serial killer or a killer that he had corresponded with and he wanted to make that story. And so he didn't really know how to do it. And then when he got this script or this this book, he was like, Oh, okay, that's my way in. So he used elements of both. So he wasn't just going, Okay, the source material. That was what Brett Ratner kind of used when you were doing the marketing. He was saying, I'm going with the book, I'm doing everything that yes. the book says, which doesn't necessarily make it going to make it mean it's going to be good or bad. So, but but, uh, really, but I mean you, that's at least you, a, you get happy accidents. Yeah, I mean, that 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 Inagata De Vita was a song that Dennis Wayne Wallace um, was considered like the song of this woman he thought he was close to that he barely knew. So it was like happy accidents like that. With the Ratner thing, I mean, it's also like it's not like he's an auteur in the same way that Man is. Like he doesn't have yeah. a distinct. St- he's a journey guy, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and you know, and I, but I mean, he's he's a journey uh, guy, com- uh. comparatively. And so, like, I think his yeah. journey ended. Actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 I so, too. so yeah. It's, it's, but as far he's as him like on a high note, as yeah. far as walks, as far as him wanted, as far as him wanted to. Um, you know, do something, you know, take on this material. It's not like you're going to look to him and be like, yep, I definitely have the Ratner version of Red Dragon. It's like, no, he'll do, if he wants to make something that's in line with, you know, the, you know bring back Anthony Hopkins to like have this weird complete set of, of sorts. Yeah, doing it by the book is like, that's the version that you'd kind of expect him to take. Like he's going to... Yeah, for some reason, it. Scott Glenn, why not? Well, like <laughs> he, he asked Scott, he obviously he asked Scott Glenn, he's like, you can be, you can come back, but we're going to need you to go full penis. And he said, no. <laughs> so he, he's like, Harvey can I tell he's going full penis all the time. Uh, uh, Kevin Bacon was busy. And so yeah. he said, and so Kaitel says yes. And then Brat Ratner's like, you know what? We're going a different direction. And, and so Kaitel's like, I, I, I guess I'll still do it. I don't, you know. But... The question I, the question I heard that story before. The the question I had that I was interested in, and I because I don't know if I'll be on that podcast or not, but I'm that I was curious about was: Do you feel like Hannibal would have been a better or worse movie if Jodie Foster had taken the Julianne Moore role? Because it was interesting when you guys were talking about that. I think it would be. I think it's negligible. I think yeah. I think it'd be more about like the kind of perceived reception you'd have at the same time though it was a huge hit so i don't know like yeah, right. people it's right. not like people rejected hannibal because she was right. like they want to right. see it a lot of the backlash to the novel which again on one hand it's very satirical on the other hand it doesn't make it a good novel was the idea that clarice starling had become this you know simplistically speaking a feminist pop culture icon and the idea of the book taking that character and basically turning her into a borderline brainwashed damsel in distress. Right. Again, satirically speaking, there's a reason for that, yada, yada, yada. Honestly, as someone that, you know, grew up, you know, very much liking Jodie Foster as an actress and Jodie Foster's version of Clarice, for me, it was frankly easier to watch with somebody else playing that role. Because mm-hmm. I, I 
avoided the you know the negative associations. And I mean, the other problem I think is that she's not much of a character in that movie. Like that too. When you're thinking of Hannibal, I can't offhand tell you like the great Jodie Foster scene, or sorry, right. uh, Julianne Moore scene yeah. in that movie. <laughs> like, right. I, and it's not it's not a, it's not her. You know, she's doing her job. It's not like she's bad at it, but it's like. Yeah. The movie's called Hannibal for a reason. Like it, it yeah. it's nice to have her back, Clarice back, and she factors into a key scene involving a, 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 a very, dinner. Yeah, a, a very nice dinner, um, the lovely <laughs> meal. Uh, but like, you know, she's not registering. She's not. She's not winning the best actress Oscar like Jodie Foster. No, I mean, <laughs> right, no. After the opening scene, she pretty much fades into the background. Right. 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 With all that said, we have more of that uh, to talk about in cool. a couple months to come on our Hannibal conference. We have finished the film Manhunter, which mm. was a delight to talk about <laughs> with you guys. Mm. Um, as we wrap up here, I want to go over where we can find more of your guys' work. Uh, Brandon Peters, start with you. Uh, the Brandon Peters Show is at com on Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, I believe the week I'll be talking great The Great Dictator with uh, director Gret- Gretel Claggett on that week. And then the following week, I have talking Working Girl with uh, Danielle Serpalvarez of the Adult Spelling Bee. Scott Mendelson. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Same old, same old, going on almost eight years. Um, my Twitter is at Scott Mendelson, and just sitting here twiddling my thumbs, waiting for theaters to open again. Maybe next year. You know, is Avatar 2 going to save us? <laughs> Avatar 2 with no with no 3D glasses. Cameron will no. create a thing where you won't have it to wear them. Beans into your stole. <laughs> thank God there's thank God there's a huge Avatar uh, fan base there to, to You take that back, Jim. <laughs> our Avatar We will be there. Is gonna be so, all right, we're going to reignite it with our comments. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> we're all going to be wearing our hair long. <laughs> We'll be using, we'll be committing Zahalu to the computer screens. So we'll be just jacked in. Yeah, I know the terms. <laughs> Jason Coleman, what do you want to plug? Nice. Um, well, I was going to say the now the downside for Flicks for Fans is that it's so hard, even in drive-ins, to do uh, any kind of you know events or immersive experiences. So it's been really difficult because I had something planned um, at one of the drive-ins, and then it just the COVID got so bad here. So it, it you know that's down. But the good news is, with theaters closed, we get to and places closed, we get to get more access. So Sundance, of course, put up most of their stuff to watch. So I will be watching a slew of Sundance films, and I'll be putting up. Uh, reviews on whysoblue.com wonderful awesome yeah, to hear. Cool. and jim deets where can people find more of you uh weekly on nothing's on uh podcast uh at the taylor network podcast.com monthly at the same place on the players club a look at video games on the players uh uh, uh club on taylor's network podcast.com on the brandon peters show every week we do the old space show talking about space 1999 just about to wrap up though unfortunately we only have a few more episodes left and uh, hhwlod.com for everything else. You can find everything I do over at thecodazeek.com. I'm on whysoblue.com, of course, and on Lead of Entertainment. And I'm also on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. You can find all the episodes of this show on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I want to thank once again Brandon, Jason, Scott, and Jim for joining me for this Manhunter commentary track. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, definitely. Yeah, this awesome. is a great one. Great. Thanks for having me. For sure. It glad is. To have, glad to My have design. you. <laughs> glad to have you man fans on here uh, this was uh, this, this was a lot of fun though i'm looking forward to this i'm looking forward to talking about silence of the lambs next month yeah we'll it, power through that one to get yeah. i know yeah that, that's, a, that's a difficult one but we'll, we'll see what we can do 
it is also nice to not have to stress over what movie we're going to talk about next month. It's like, oh, no, we got that set for months. Yeah, yeah, for months. We're good. (laughs) Uh, But no, we look forward to doing those. We hope you listeners enjoy what we have to talk about in the further adventures of Hannibal, the man Lecter. Uh, But that's that's going to do it uh, for this uh, commentary track. So until next time, so long and goodbye. And now, please rise for our opening hymn, uh, In the Garden of Eden, by I, Ron Butterfly. In the Garden of Eden, honey, don't you know that I love you? In the Garden of Eden, baby, don't you know that I Remember when we used to make out to this hymn? Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Oh, this land.